Let's take it to the edge. Let's get deflected. Let's talk about the night perspective. Let's get sharp. Let's get a little real. Let's talk about the night perspective. Hey guys, I'm Dan Eastland with Dogwood Custom Knives, and I'm here with Kyle Daly from KH Daily Knives. And this is episode number 014 of The Knife Perspective. And this episode, we're going to go under the kilt with Stephen Fowler and talk Damascus. How are you doing tonight, Kyle? Oh, pretty good, Dan. Pretty excited about this one. We were had Stephen back in episode 10 and uh didn't didn't fully dive into damascus i'm pretty excited about uh going deeper into it uh, i forgot our tagline would you like to deliver the tagline tonight we peel back the layers on damascus there you go hey you're getting that nice little finish to your voice you're feeling very yeah. uh I, i'm almost ready to buy a used car from you <laughs> I, I don't know if I'd buy any used car for me, but uh, yeah, getting a little better, more comfortable talking behind the microphone. So, yeah, when uh, when I was in the service, when we started doing combo training, they referred to it as mic fright, and it's amazing how many people are fine until they press the talk button on a microphone and then lock up. Yeah, I I get it. How are you doing tonight? I am getting better all the time. Yeah. Every walk of parade, every meal of feast. I am totally not sleep deprived in the least. No cough syrup this time? No, I am uh I'm feeling good. Um so that wasn't a dream. We really did record a uh, a podcast while I was on cough syrup. Yeah. Yeah, you and Clay and I think you had a couple of Guinness and uh something you called like a white claw or something like that. Uh, see, I know you're lying now. There, there is not enough. Co- I don't care how much protein there is in the cough syrup. That it just that just didn't happen. All hey, right. Hang on, wait a minute. Let me check my wallet. Yeah, I still got a man card. Nope. But is it missing a corner? No. Oh, what you think you would drive up here and take the whole card from me if I had been drinking white claw? Hey, what are you doing talking? You're supposed to be muted. We haven't introduced you. Yet. Go to timeout. <laughs> uh, uh, so we got the the sponsors of the podcast, uh, Cage Daily Knives and Dogwood Custom Knives for all your knife needs. And you can find both of our knives at Old Town Cutlery is our dealer. They have uh, a bunch of my kitchen knives, and I just saw them get a, a couple of cool knives that Dan made. And uh, you can also find Dan's knives at Knife Center. You got anything more to say about that, Dan? Uh, that's about all I got to say about that. Cool. Yep, a little shout-out action. Yeah, so the the Woodsman's pilot, and I believe he holds the current record for the highest listening altitude and the fastest speed while listening to the podcast. He's a pilot, so he's got a little little advantage on a lot of people. You know, I've heard that there's somebody in the military that listens to us, so I'm hoping they're going to take up this challenge. Um, (laughs) 
and actually get put some numbers to how fast we were going? Yeah, I mean, uh, I believe he was at uh, thirty seven thousand feet, moving five hundred something miles an hour. So come on, guys, <laughs> don't let that record stand. Don't let a civilian do this to you. Woodsman pilot's a, a great guy. He is. Um, met him through the Becker forums and extremely knowledgeable and actually has one of the, the first, the limited run of 10, that first run I did of reproduction cap hearts. Uh, he has got, I believe, number 10 of that that series. Nice. Well, he's going to have one of my first uh, bread dives, so he's going to get number three. That I've made. You're a better man than me. I still refuse to do uh, scalloped edges. So uh, I was kind of messing around with some stuff. I, I have a uh, Fordham tool. It's kind of like a Dremel on steroids. And I actually put the the chuck in my vise with uh, they have like a plastic molded jaw insert that holds it. And that way I could kind of like look straight down on it. And that seemed to make yeah. make it all go a lot better. Huh. Um, I, I look forward to hearing more about uh, how that finishes out then. Yeah. I think I'm going to try uh, doing the sharpening scallops uh, one after another on either side instead of doing them all on one side like I did my first two. Uh, would you be able to shoot a video of that? Uh, I can definitely try. Uh, I'd like to see how you do it. Okay. You have any other shout outs you want to plug? I uh, was going to talk to uh, talk about both Casting Kings and Beyond Wood products. I've uh, I've been using a couple of their materials. I've uh, been using a lot of Casting Kings lately. They do some really cool hybrid. Uh, mm-hmm. And not only are they good guys to work with, but I have they've done a really good job on their materials. They're they're really attractive and they get good solid penetration. Where you have uh, in the hybrid stuff where you've got the wood to the transition on the, the acrylic or the epoxy, whatever they mix is nice. It's harder than some of the other stuff I've found, which makes it way easier when it comes to the finishing uh, uh, finishing stage. Cool. Yeah, I've used a lot of Beyond Woods products, so my, my last couple of batches were pretty much exclusively uh, their stuff. Uh, we're honored tonight to have the star of both TV and Twitch. Stephen Fowler, uh, he is back to talk Damascus with us. Uh, all right, all right, all right. Oh, all right. Right. Oh, man. <laughs> man, I, I can't work with the, I can't work under these conditions. I quit. Okay, I'm back. Um, <laughs> so uh, back again. Dan is back. Tell a friend. <laughs> so as most of y'all remember, Stephen Fowler was back on episode 10. If y'all somehow haven't heard episode 10, pause now, run back, listen to episode 10, get caught up to us. Hey, glad to have y'all back. So as I was saying, we talked to Stephen on episode 10, and that was kind of a, a, a broad, all things, an overview of hitting hot things with a hammer. And we touched a little bit on the modern idea of Damascus. Which, as you listen to that episode, you'll know that that true Damascus was watered or boot steel. It wasn't the folded steel that we think of today as Damascus. But tonight we're going to talk about uh, the modern concept of Damas and some of the other forms of, uh, I hope this is the right term, and I am sure Stephen will correct me if it's not, but forge welded. So, Stephen, was that the right term? Uh 
Am I officially introduced? Can I speak now? You can. <laughs> yes, yes, that was correct. It was forge welded or, or pattern welded is uh, the proper term of art in, in current parlance. Nice. Yes. So you did. So, so to just go ahead and put you right on the spot, did you get the link about knives on the news? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, the Harbor Freight recall. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I we, Kyle was going to do knives I'm on the news. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Carry on as you were. Yes, <laughs> sorry. Forget I said anything. I work with uh, a bunch of people, and literally, there's a Harbor Freight like right outside our our building i've been told by like at least 20 people hey do you hear of harbor freight recalled uh 1.1 million five dollar pocket knives uh for a laceration hazard and i'm like a laceration hazard like it's like really a knife will cut you yeah this, so. this is the point in the conversation where i would really annoy my wife with my very dry sarcastic yeah but <laughs> <laughs> right. so the yeah, the Harbor Freight official statement was the locking mechanism can fail to engage on extension of the blade, posing a laceration hazard. Apparently, they've had like six people cut themselves, so they're recalling 1.1 million knives for the, the lock bar uh, not uh, engaging properly. So that's a good reason to buy a uh, cage daily knife, a dogwood custom knife, or uh, a Fowler blades knife. Indeed. I, from what, if I'm not mistaken, neither a dogwood nor a cage daily knife has ever folded unintentionally. <laughs> well, there's one, one cage daily knife that hasn't been finished that folds, but huh? yeah, it's, uh, it started over three years ago and has never been finished. <laughs> that's a pretty, that's a pretty standard R and D time. <laughs> I mean, three to five years to flush out a pattern is, is, is about, that's about standard industry. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Oh, that's it. That's if you're actually working on it. I've it's been sitting in the gun case over there for quite a while. Uh, well, hey, you're a knife maker. You don't work on stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So if you want to li- read more about it, we got the USA Today uh, article in the show notes. You can click on it and read some more about this uh, company, Gordon, that apparently made 1.1 million. Uh, Knives for five dollars. I, I still don't understand how, how you can make a knife for five dollars. But whatever. The short version is: if you buy a cheap knife, there's a good chance it'll fail on you. Yes. Yeah. Approaching the level of no longer being chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get into the uh, the interview, Stephen. Want to give us a uh, kind of a brief overview of what forge welding is? Sure. So, forge welding is is actually pretty simple. It's the process of of taking two pieces of steel or more, multiple pieces of steel, heating them up until they're basically molten and smushing them together. Um, One of the things that I like to to kind of impress upon students as I'm working with them is the idea that when you're forging steel, um, you really want to think of steel as if it's Play-Doh. And Actually, one of the things that a lot of uh, of storied Damascus makers or pattern welding uh, makers will tell you is if you're if you're trying to figure out a new pattern, go get Play-Doh and and you know make pieces of Play-Doh and and make your pattern out of Play-Doh and, yeah. and see how it moves. Um, and you can you can do all kinds of uh, really good you know dry run type stuffs with Play-Doh uh, the same way because Play-Doh and 
steel, when it's hot in its plastic deformation phase, move under power in the same fashion. Hmm. And to to practice your patterns, especially for pattern welding when you want the feathers and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. it's a great way to fold it this way, fold it that way, fold it this way, yeah. and you can see your end result mm-hmm. without spending five hours in front of a hot forge. Exactly, yes. Which, uh, you know, down here in the south, five hours in front of a hot forge, I mean, they, they practically have to give you fluids intravenously at that point. Yeah. What was some of the historical significance of why they decided to start doing that uh, back in the day? Um, which back in the day are we referring to? Um, sure. So if, if you go back how, into how back you go? Uh, uh, pretty darn far, you can go back to the, the you know, mo- the modern man's uh, invention of steel when we moved from the Iron Age into the Steel Age. You know, we had the Bronze Age where we were, we were you know, cooking rocks next to the fire and noticed this weird liquid leaking out of them. Um, and kind of the next technological development for humanity was the Iron Age, where we realized that, you know, iron would create this dust. And if you if you cooked it hot enough, it would kind of glom together and you could kind of form it into shapes that were significantly stronger than the bronze. Um, but the next af- the next after that was where you got into steel, where you had, you know, carbon in it. Well, up until the Bessemer furnace was invented in the, you know, early mid 1800s, there was no way to make steel. Uh, on a on a large scale. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the Bessemer furnace is that like a blast furnace? That's a poor stair furnace. Uh, I'm not. I'm, sh- I'm not sure exactly what you mean by poor stair, but but I want to be clear. Uh, so the yeah. Bessemer process was was invented um, towards the towards the end of the 17th century, early 18th, 18th century. What you would do is so when you're when you're melting down iron, and we'll get kind of into this a little bit later as to why we made Damascus steel. But when you're melting down iron, it's really easy to get way too much carbon in there and get cast iron, right? Well, the problem with cast iron is there's too much carbon in there and you can't use it. It's not a malleable steel. Um, It's a pourable steel, but it's very, uh, it's not very ductile. You can't form it and fold it and move it. It doesn't move well. And cast iron is 2% or more carbon? Uh, Technically, it's one point. One three percent. Oh wow! I didn't realize it was that low. I think it's one point one three percent. I'll have to check to be precise. But you know, um, it's just it's just a little bit above like you know ten ninety five and W two. Just a little more carbon, and you get into cast iron real quickly. Um, Now the the pourable like a cast iron pot or pan, you know, yeah, that's going to be a two percent carbon or so forth. Um, But anyways, so the the Bessemer furnace or the Bessemer process was since cast iron is really easy to make, they figured out that you could just make cast iron and then force inject oxygen into it and burn off a large amount of that carbon. So up until that point, you know, they were trying to infuse just enough carbon into it to make steel and then, you know, work from there. Well, the the advent of the Bessemer process was the beginning of the era, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, really, where they could actually make steel of a known carbon content on a, you know, fairly mass uh, uh, scale where they could make, you know, tons of it at a time. 
Yeah, so it changed from the the bones of two ravens and <laughs> one wing feather. Yeah, to, and and you, you laugh, do. but that's that's really what they would kind of do. So before the Bessemer process, where they could actually make ingots of steel, where they you know make cast iron and they'd burn off enough carbon that it was now back down to steel, and then they could take that ingot out of there and they'd have this big lump of steel that was more or less homogenous. Uh, by today's standards, not at all homogenous, but by those standards, uh, very homogenous, because just prior to that, all they, the best they could do was what was called sheer steel. Um, and if you look at old case knives, they are a really good example of this. They'd have, you know, single X and single X and double X and triple X case knives. And what that was telling you was how many times the steel had been refined in those oh. case knives. Basically, they would case harden wrought iron. So they would take uh, wrought iron, which is iron with little negligent amounts of, of carbon in it, and they would forge it out into teeny little strips, and then they would pack it into a canister with a case hardening compound, which was, you know, very commonly, they would take, you know, bones and charcoal, and they would grind it up, and they would pack that in there, and then they would cook. And that was the carbon source. Yeah, and that was their carbon source. They would they would cook that in the in the in the forge for however many hours it took, depending on the thickness of the steel. And when they would take it out, some percentage of the skin of that uh, of those strips of wrought iron would have taken up carbon from the from the associate atmosphere of all the carbon bearing stuff. And they would take all those strips and they would weld them together and, and you know, forge it on itself several times. And that was frequently the, where they would get what we would call a, a pattern welded pattern. Um, and we'll, we'll get into that into the old Viking patterns in, in a second. But that was about the only way to make you know, high carbon steel. So if you did it once, you'd get, you know, about 0.03% carbon. You, you could kind of make a blade out of it, but not really. It's it's a decent axe blade, but it's not a really good knife blade and certainly not a, not a good sword blade. So what they would do is they would then take that case hardened steel that they had put all together and forge welded, and they would draw all that out into little strips again, and they'd do the whole process over again. And that would be 2x steel. That would be double refined steel. And every time you do it, you would get, you know, a, a certain percentage of carbon added into the steel, uh, depending on how thin the strips were and what type of carburizing compound you were using and how long you cooked it and so forth. This was also frequently called blister steel. You may have heard that term as well. Um, so it's blister steel or sheer steel or, or, um, or so forth, or case-hardened steel. Um, Case-hardening is the process of adding carbon to the surface of steel in this manner. Um, but they would do it, you know, one, two, three times or so. And at the third time, you'd generally be up to, you know, 0 0.084 or 0.84% carbon or something, uh, something reasonable for a sword or whatnot. What we would think of today is 1084. Yes, yes. What we would think of today is 1084. And very appropriately, uh, you know, the 10 series steels were meant to kind of mimic that same process and the same alloying contents of that so that smiths of the day would have a, a reasonable understanding of how to treat those steels moving forward. So they could kind of say, you know, 1045 is, you know, single X and 1074 would, would be, you know, double X and 1084, 1095 would be triple X, you know. So, uh, so it was huh. a reasonable amalgam of, of communication between steel manufacturers and, you know, the people using said steel. That's really interesting.
I didn't know that about the case knives with the the X's on there. I thought that was just their like inspection step or whatever. No, in, in a lot of now this is the older ones we're talking about. There, mm-hmm. you know, the, later on it was you know just a uh, it was just a kind of a marking. marking. Um, but you know, you know, old 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 knives of that nature that was to tell you basically the carbon content of the steel. It was you know was it single refined or double refined or triple refined steel. On a side note, when you hear about, for example, a case-hardened file mm-hmm. and why that's not a good file to make a file knife out of, it's because only the, the outside surface has a high enough carbon content. Yeah, and that carbon content will only be, you know, five to ten thousandths deep. It's not much. So, you know, a, a case-hardened file, if you turn that into a knife, you know, yeah, you may have an edge, but, you know, by the time you sharpen that knife for a year or two, uh, you're probably going to get into soft steel in at least some form. Um, it's it's really not going to be a, a, a good end product. You'll run into edge retention or mm-hmm. edge holding or you just got a soft steel blade. Sure, sure. Um, sorry to sidetrack you on. Uh... No, yeah. So, um, so, so part of the process of turning you know, wrought iron into, you know, shear steel or blister steel in that fashion and ending up with, you know, a a blade length piece of steel is a a lot of times where a lot of the patterns would come from in like European uh, swords and some Japanese swords, just they, they call it Hada, but it's, you know, that same patterning that shows you how the steel was manipulated in its process. So one of the things you'll see in, in a lot of uh, like uh, Viking swords is you'll see that twisted, uh, twisted Damascus look. And, you know, in, in modern Damascus, when we put a twist in a piece of Damascus, it's because we want it to look like it's twisted. It's because we want it to look that way. Um, but in, in Viking times in, in, and swords of the, of the middle ages, what they were actually doing was proving that their welds had taken, because one of the most abusive things you can do to a forge weld uh-huh is twisting it. If if you're going to tear that weld, it's going to tear when you twist it. So that was that was a proof check, if you will, of quality. So only yeah. the higher quality Viking swords would be twisted. Because it's almost a 360 degree direction of force. Yes. Um, the, the most abusive thing you can do to a, a freshly welded surface is called slip shear, where you're working perpendicular to the plane of the weld, all right? So if you're working parallel to the plane of the weld, you know, unless you did something really stupid, you're not gonna destroy that weld. But if you're working 90 degrees off of your weld surface, you know, you just have to sneeze on it a little hard on the at the beginning of your welding process and you can shear your welds, you can destroy that weld plane. Um, well, when you twist it, there's no way to, uh, do anything to to do any forging on that bar of twisted steel that is not perpendicular to some weld plane right so the only way to to pull that off is to have really good welds that's that's the list there's no cheating if there's a flaw it will show exactly yes um and how does when you forge weld forge weld what's going on i mean i understand you're taking two hot pieces of metal and joining them Okay, so 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 think of it in these in these terms. Um, have you ever have you ever gone to one of those? You'll you'll appreciate this, Dan. I know you will. You have you have you ever gone to one of those like really amazing 
Philly cheesesteak places where they take like the half a wheel of cheese and they hold it up on the under the broiler and the top of that cheese gets all molten and they take and they scrape that molten bit off onto your sandwich? You know, I lived in Philly for a little while and at first I did the Geno's and Pat's thing and mm-hmm. I've been to Geno's. You know, Fantastic. You know, you, you, you gotta do it. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there was this little deli just down the road from me. Yeah. Uh, and to your point, they had the wheel of cheese and they would heat mm-hmm, it up mm-hmm. and they'd scrape it off onto the mm-hmm. – oh. It, right? It'd make a good oh. man do bad things. Okay. So. Isn't the real cheese for that supposed to be cheese whiz? No. Yeah. Oh. Um, that, how, how do I how do I kick Kyle out of this conversation? Uh, is there a way is there a way that I can do that? Is there a button that, I can press? Isn't that but, supposed to be the official uh, Philly cheesecake steak all right, cheese? So the, all right, so there's yeah, my there's, my soul aches for you, Kyle. That you would <laughs> that you would even I mean, that you would even bring that into this this conversation. Mean, cheese wins. Where to start? I mean, technically, yeah. Oh. The 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 four o'clock in the morning I'm drunk Geno's and Pat's thing oh well yeah yeah but I yeah mean, that's like going to Waffle House and saying isn't this a steak <laughs> yeah. do the Ron okay. do the Ron Swanson give me all of your bacon and eggs <laughs> no no wait son I'm afraid you misunderstood me <laughs> I think you heard bring me a lot of bacon and eggs I didn't say that <laughs> I said bring me all of your bacon and eggs. And just like that, Kyle redeems himself. It's a freaking miracle. I knew we kept him around for something. Yeah. All right, so so you've got that mental image in in your head of that half a wheel of cheese and the top is all Mm. molten. Yeah, I'm following you. Right, but he's still holding the other half. It's still hard. It's still solid. So imagine, if you will, if he had two halves a wheel of cheese. And he holds both of them under the broiler until just that surface is melted. And then he stuck them together. He would have one wheel of cheese if he let it cool off, obviously. Right? Mm-hmm. So that is effectively what forge welding is. Okay? You're not trying to get the entire thickness of your steel. You're not trying to get all of it molten. Just the skin. Just that Just that fine little surface and your flux plays a high far, a high factor in that process. So you're just trying to get just the surface of the steel up to that molten phase. And then you just press it together. And if you do it properly and you don't have other crap in between it, which is the major uh, error that most people make is they don't clean their steel properly in the welding process. Uh, uh, if you if you keep everything clean and you get it hot enough and you touch it together, it'll weld. And it really does not take a lot of force to create the weld. And on a microscopic level, are we talking about trading carbon atoms to bond or are we talking that you get a new grain structure? Um, more more akin to trading carbon atoms. Okay. Um, so – in in a in a physics sense in a in a you know laboratory physics professor with the coat on and doing science uh sense if you could get steel perfectly clean and you could get it perfectly flat and you could get another piece of steel perfectly clean and perfectly flat 
All you would have to do is rub those two surfaces together and they would bond. If you could actually get them in a, in a truly scientifically sense or in, in a truly scientific sense, clean and flat, all you've got to do is touch them together and they will bond. Now, in the physical world we live in, there's no such thing as that flat. So we use heat and impact to make it happen. Okay. But iron wants to bond to iron. It really does. Well, if you can take oxygen away from it, there's no oxygen involved here and you can get it to actually touch another piece of iron. It'll go, well, Hey baby, yeah. how are you doing? Yeah. Like, and hook up. Like is drawn to like. Exactly. Right. So you mentioned heat. One of some of our questions were, what are kind of the most common forges to do Damascus in? Um, I mean, the most common is going to be propane. Um, propane forges are uh, pretty much the industry standard um, for for knife making and especially for Damascus forging. Just due to their simplicity, you know, there's there's a pretty easy learning curve for a propane forge, if, especially if you're hey there. What's that? Um, especially if you're not building your own. Well, I got to be drunk to do this. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm about to open my uh, my next victory golden monkey Belgian triple. Uh, but I've got a little it, side note. Um, you know, w when a beer is so good that I go, yeah, that needs to be in a glass. That's a good beer. Yeah. Hold your pinky up when you say that. And I do. And I do. It's quite nice. Anyway, <laughs> so we were talking about forges. Um, so if if you're going to just go out and buy a forge um, to do Damascus with, the learning curve is about as, as simple as it can be. Plug a propane tank into it, turn the valve on, hit the ignition thingy. It'll get hot enough. Now, if you're going to build your own, there's some some tuning pitfalls that you want to kind of look at, kind of learn about. But that, that, that's a whole nother episode. No, sure, 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 sure. And there's, you know, that'd be a really difficult one to really get into on a podcast because there's so much that I need to be able to point at something and say, look at this right here. That's got to look like that. But anyways, the, you know, the, the, the learning curve for running a propane forge uh, for the use of welding up Damascus is really, really easy. Now, coal, if you, if you have the time to learn how to use coal properly, uh, coal burns a lot hotter than propane. I personally love working with coal. It's really fun to work with. It creates a lot more heat. You'll come up to heat a lot faster with your billets. Um, you can do a lot more work. And it's, there's just something nostalgic and enjoyable about using coal for me just because it's, it's, it's fun. And it's got a smell. Yeah, it's, it's got a smell. And, and, and you get to feel like you're playing with fire versus a propane forge where, you know, it's, you know, it's more like a, a, a glass blower's glory hole where stick it in there until it's hot and take it out. And, you, know, you don't get to really do anything with it. But now I use, I use a propane forge for pretty much all of my work, mostly because I'm still in my garage, which is attached to my house. And uh, my wife and my children live in my house and I don't want to burn it down. Uh, and I don't want it to smell like coal. And a coal forge takes very specific venting and you've got to have, a fluid yeah. properly and yeah pretty much all coal has uh sulfur and uh usually some lead and some other um you know elements in it that you don't particularly want to be uh you know inhaling uh so you you want to be very very particular with your ventilating 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 
when you're using a, pro, a coal forge. Um, now, that's not to say that ventilation is not important with propane forges because you're still exposing yourself to a massive amount of carbon monoxide. Uh, so ventilation is key, very important. Um, but, you know, carbon monoxide, all you got to do is, you know, make sure you've got a, a fresh supply of oxygen. Handy. One can be solved by um, opening a rolling up door. The other is needs a, a chimney that has proper draw and Yes, yes, because you will smoke yourself out of any room you're in. Uh, and coal, you've got to – because something about the coke and then you, you start from tender mm -hmm. and you work the coke up and then you build the coal onto that. And I mean there's an artistry uh, to that. Sort of, kind of. So um, coal is the raw product as it's mined out of the ground. It's, it's a rock. And it has uh, volatile off-gassing components, VOCs. Which are the, you know, the sulfur and the, you know, all the other stuff in the coal that you don't want. And oil, there's, there's you know, natural oil in coal. As you burn that out, the coal will puff up like a marshmallow that's been overcooked and you, and that's coke. And coke is what you actually want to use as a blacksmith. You want coke, not coal. But it's usually not economically or, or storage-wise feasible to buy coke. Versus coal, um, coal is really easy to get. Coke is more expensive, and you so know, so you buy the coal, you heat it up, you make coke, and then you forge. Yeah, so there's there's a whole process of feeding your fire as you go, where you know you put coke around the edges of your fire, and as it as it gets hot on the edges of the fire, it turns into coke, and you feed it into the center of the fire where you're actually doing your work, and you feed feed fresh coal around the edges, and you know you you kind of keep progressing along feeding your fire and if you lose the rhythm of this whole process somewhere in the middle of it suddenly your fire is all messed up and you've got to rebuild your fire and you know that's that's the whole uh romanticism of of using a coal forge is is kind of getting into that rhythm of your work where you're feeding the coal and you're resetting your fire and you're doing your work and then you're feeding your coal and resetting your fire and you're forging your steel and and, and you get into this rhythm that's really quite quite nice when you're comfortable with it but as a beginner it is a nightmare so what i'm hearing is propane is the way to go as a beginner you know i i don't want to unduly uh, uh influence anyone in one way or another if you want if you have coal and want to use coal have fun i will however say you'd be a lot easier learning on a propane forge and then adding coal to it later when you have some idea of what you're trying to do with your forge Dustin, propane also have the advantage you can actually see the heat of your metal, where coal you kind of have to have it underneath some of the as it's going uh, through. You there. do have to have it underneath. If you're doing it properly, you can still see your steel inside the coal forge. But yes, it, it's much simpler with a propane forge because you just look inside of there, and I promise the only thing in there is your steel. And uh, my gosh, that's Terry Red. It's time to pull it out. Yeah, what I like to tell students as I'm working with them is, is, you know, leave the steel in there until it's the same color as the rest of the forge and it's not going to get any hotter, so pull it out and do it. But now one of the other advantages to using a coal forge is you can actually use charcoal, which is generally a, a very easily obtainable source. And the, the reason that this is a, a reasonable uh, a, a reasonable suggestion for beginners is you can build a coal forge out of just trash. Uh, you can go get a brake drum. Coal or charcoal? Charcoal. 
uh, you, well, coal or charcoal, any solid medium uh, heat supply. Um, you can use charcoal. It won't get as hot as coal. Uh, just don't use briquettes. Use actual lump charcoal. Um, if you've got a good supply of wood, you can make your own charcoal. It's very simple. Light wood on fire. Uh, when it no longer looks like wood, put it out. You've got charcoal. Charcoal will get you, what, about 2,000 degrees? Yeah, yeah, which you can weld with charcoal, but kind of just barely. Uh, 1,800 is the magic number for welding. Um, where propane and coal will get you closer to what? Propane, uh, 1,800 is kind of the top end of it. Um, coal, you can get 2,500 pretty oh, wow. pretty well. Oh, yeah, you can you can literally melt your steel. Which is bad. Yeah. It kind of loses form and substance <laughs> at that point. When you go from plastic to liquid, bad things happen. Yeah. You know that scene at the beginning of Conan when he pours the blade in the, in the, in the yeah. Liquid steel doesn't do that. Um, that won't work. You can't no, do no, that. no. In, uh, in the Hobbit movie, they were pouring, mm-hmm. uh, they were pouring liquid mm-hmm. steel into to rock mm-hmm. forges. And then like five minutes later, mm-hmm. they had really cool, uh, mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. Work. Mm-hmm. No, no, that's, no, that's not the way that works. Uh, nope. I promise. Hollywood lied to me again. Yeah, they will. Yes. I thought you were a local expert on Hobbits, Dan. <laughs> Just the feet. <laughs> for for <a> feet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, coal forges, they take a little more work to, to understand and get into the rhythm of using properly. But you can pretty much get a, a you know, a, a bathroom fan style fan, something that pushes 20 or 30 CFM and put it into the bottom of some kind of a chamber that you can put fuel into and start a fire and boom, you're forging. I did a demo for the Georgia Bushcraft Guild years and years ago where I went and found a rock in the woods and built a campfire and, and just kind of put a, a port from a uh you know one of those little pump uh uh airbed blower upper thingies mm-hmm. i used that as a bellows and i used the rock out of the woods as an anvil and i took a, a old broken file and i made a knife in the middle of the woods with no power tools hmm. and that's kind of the advantage to a coal forge is you, you, it's a really really simple setup to get started but it takes a little practice to know how to actually keep your your fuel flowing in the forge to be efficient Tanimboka knives out of um he's the local contact for the trips down to the amazon mm-hmm. he uses a hair dryer and charcoal mm-hmm. forge to forge all of his sure. stuff in fact mm-hmm. works just fine in fact that hair dryer is the only piece of electrically driven equipment he uses mm-hmm. that's pretty crazy i Gorin is a fascinating guy. Um, you know, I will see if we can figure out a way to get him on. Because among mm-hmm. other things, he does whitesmithing, um, uh, stock removal with no power tools. That's a, that's what sounds like a lot of uh, elbow grease right there. A, a little bit, but I've sidetracked our conversation. Sorry <laughs> about that. Oh, I don't know. I think power tools feeds very nicely into where we got to go Which next. Force. Yeah. Because power. Yeah, once – Exactly. Force, power. You know, once once you've got your steel hot, and again, you're you're really only trying to get just that that surface of the steel, a couple thousandths deep to the, you know, more or less molten phase. And, you know, we, we haven't talked about flux yet, but that kind of ties into this conversation a little bit later. 
um, flux does help the process a lot because it will lower the melting temperature of that surface and also inhibits oxygen from contacting the surface. So you're inhibiting scale. Uh, those are the two major uh, uses of flux is they lower the temperature of melting and they inhibit oxygen from, uh, you know, destroying your surface. So anyway, cool. so you've got your, we'll you've got your that. steel and you've got the yeah, yeah, power, power, heater. power. Yes. So you've got your steel, you've got it hot. Now you've got to push it together because we're not in that weird physicist's world where we can make that perfectly flat steel and perfectly clean. Well, heat lets us get around that because if it's hot, we can just kind of force it together and the surfaces will kind of meld to each other and boom, you're, you're there. Because when things don't fit, you just hit them with a hammer. I do. I don't. I don't know about. I don't know about you and your stock removal silliness, yeah. but you the know. BFH. <laughs> That's a number four BFH. <laughs> uh, I have a number one BFH. It's wow. twenty pounds. That's an attitude adjuster. Yes. Yeah. I, I use it one handed. It's fun. I I humiliate people with that sometimes. Anyways. Ooh, look at me! I'm a shaved Sasquatch. I swing a twenty pound hammer. <laughs> To be fair, there's not a whole lot of swing <laughs> involved. It's more pick up I let and drop, it but but drop very precisely. It's dropped with precision. It's falling with style. <laughs> nice. Uh, I'm totally ripping that off. <laughs> so the 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 typical, you know, the the most standard uh, power tools involved in this process are obviously the power hammer and the hydraulic press. Um, you can actually use a fly press pretty well as uh, also, um, and it's kind of somewhere in between the two uh, in terms of efficiency. I was about to ask, I'm sorry, what's a fry press? What's a fry, pr- fry <laughs> press? How, how many of those drinks have you had, Dan? Embarrassing um, half one. <laughs> <laughs> a fly press um, is kind of one of the, the original uh, power tools for blacksmiths. Um, it's it's an entirely mechanical device that is actually hand powered. So you've got this this flywheel that is mounted horizontally on top of basically a big arbor press, and it's got you know depending on what size fly press you've got, it's got a large counterweight on it, and you you pull the counterweight back and let it go, and it will kind of self drive the arbor press. Um. You know, you can get into a rhythm with it, and you can you can do pretty efficient work with basically a fifty pound hammer uh, if you've got dies that are set up properly for your work and and so forth. But that's not something that most people that that are getting into Damascus are going to be looking at. Um, that, that was ten- a, that was an early deve- developmental stage, which we bypassed. Well. Kind of. It's it's not really suited to making Damascus. Um, it's something that you know true artist blacksmiths will tend to have uh, because it it's more suited to uh, quick change dies and and figuring out specific processes that you're going to do over and over and over again. Okay. Where you know it, it's not really a brute force machine. It's more of a finesse force machine. That kind of a thing. Uh, mm-hmm. But if if you've got one, you can use it. If you if you have one of those and you don't have a power hammer, it's better than nothing, brother. It'll get it done. There's a good chance if you've got one of those, you can skip the whole rest of this podcast. <laughs> if you've got one of those, you're probably just listening to this so you can laugh at me. <laughs> that's fine. Which that's is fine because that's what the rest of us are doing. 
but anyways, the the two kind of the the two kind of standard power tools that you're going to find in a knife maker's shop are going to be power hammers and hydraulic presses. And there's there's subsets, especially of the power hammers, of whether you're using you know a pneumatic hammer or a tire hammer or a uh, a mechanical hammer like a, a Massey or a uh, a little giant or or whatnot. But they all basically take a large weighted thing and sling it up and down like a hammer. Cool. And then you've got the hydraulic press, which um, is, it's a hydraulic press. If, if I've got to explain to you what a hydraulic press is, this isn't really your podcast. Uh, it goes smush. You kind of mentioned last time that the hydraulic press was more for kind of getting it started. And once you got it thinner, oh, using oh, the now, power now hammer. We'll... Yeah, we'll we'll certainly get into you know the advantages and disadvantages of both and how how they're used. But if I have to explain to you the basic concept of a hydraulic press, mm. uh, go back to episode go, ten. Catch go, up. Google, baby, Google, Google is your friend. So hydric, hydric, hydraulic presses go smush, 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 and power hammers go bam, 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 right, and about that fast. A hydraulic press is slow and powerful. Yes, smush, smush. Smush. And a power, power hammer. Bam, 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 bam. Okay, one more time, just because I like hearing you say it. <laughs> Which one? The smush, <laughs> smush, smush. Oh, no, no. Or... Bam, 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 baby. Bam, 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 bam. Yeah, that's... <laughs> there you go. I'm glad I could help the, you out. The Flintstones there is what that reminds me of. <laughs> bam, 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 bam. <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. Great difference. And and then uh, obviously there's also you know the the old standby of uh, my big old right hand and right arm you know you, you can make Damascus by hand mm-hmm. I have made Damascus by hand uh, I as quickly as I could went out and spent thousands of dollars on power tools so I did not have to make Damascus by hand it's not fun it can be done it's not that bad if you're you know, if you if you get comfortable with your forging techniques and how to move, it's really not that bad if you get a couple of strikers. But, you know, nothing beats big power tools where you can just kind of step on a treadle and watch it work. <laughs> so, much, so much nicer. I've got this fantasy where I'll get the two boys to come with me as strikers. <laughs> and I'll make two billets, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, one for each kid. Mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. we'll never do Damascus by hand ever again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I don't know why I've just got this this fantasy where each of them help me as a striker, and we make a billet for each of them for me to make a knife. Yep. Now, if you're if you're working by hand, it's certainly doable. It's not that bad. It does. It is more work. I'm not going to lie to you. It is more work. You're going to sweat, but it's not that. And that's what you're not necessarily getting paid for. Right. Right. It's not that bad. Um, I would highly suggest that you keep your billets under an inch thick. Once you get over an inch thick, man, it makes it hard to forge by hand. That's just, whew, that's just a lot of work, man. You can do it. I have faith in you, but <laughs> that's a lot of work. <laughs> I don't want to do that ever again. <laughs> that's why I'm bringing two young men as strikers. Oh, there you go. That, that's the plan. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll do, I'll, I'll watch them. And later on, we'll send them to get, you know, blinker fluid. <laughs> <laughs> my job is I, my concept is tap 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 to show them where the hammer's supposed to go, mm-hmm. and then I get out of the way. Yep, yep, absolutely. 
now the other thing about strikers and you know and and doing it by hand is you're going to want a much bigger anvil. Um, at this point, we should probably mention what a striker is. So a striker is a a second individual that is wielding a sledgehammer, usually five to eight pound sledgehammers, and you know working in concert with the the headsmith who is usually controlling the billet on the anvil. So you know if if I was the the headsmith, I would have this billet of steel in the forge, and I'm sitting there looking at it. As it gets up to the temperature where I want it to be, I'm going to look at my striker over there, and, and I'm going to tap the anvil. I don't have my it, – it, you ring the anvil to let him know that I'm about to pull this out, and I'm going to set it on the anvil, and as soon as I do, you're going to start hitting it, right? And uh, usually done with more than one striker, so you get a team of strikers, two to three to four, and, uh, you know, you, you kind of get a, into a rhythm with the strikers. Um, and it's it's basically a, a human powered power hammer, you know that, that that's all you're you're really trying to do is replace the concept of a power hammer with somebody young and strong and impressionable enough to actually do this for you. And back in the day, that would probably be an apprentice or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where they're learning to swing the hammer and they've got a fairly heavy hammer and mm-hmm. they've only got to hit a certain spot on the anvil and you move the steel around so that they hit the right spot. Precisely. Yep. And then you go back in. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's, you know, if if you get into it, there's a whole code of, it's kind of like Morse code that the head hammer or the head blacksmith uses with his, because he's holding a little two pound hammer and he's really using it as a, uh, as a bell ringer to signal to the other smiths. Because generally a, a smithy, especially in the old days like that would be a rather noisy place and you can't really talk to commun- to communicate. But you can hear the anvil ring. So, you know, you'll be ringing, you'll be, you know, forging along and the head blacksmith will, you know, one ring is do this and two rings is do that and three rings is stop and so on and so forth. Uh, or, you know, ding, ding, ding is this. You, you come up with a whole code and every different blacksmith shop kind of had their own. But, you know, uh, it, very important to learn to communicate with your strikers what you're expecting them to do and when to start and when to stop and, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but you know, it's it's a human-powered power hammer. Does the same thing in basically the same way. With a lot more work. With a lot more sweat involved, yes. Now, as we're talking about Damascus, it's important to note that the, the two major power tools, the power hammer and the hydraulic press, um, are very, very useful, but they use, they move the steel in a different fashion. Um, so... And it's important to note the the timing of what I was saying earlier, where a hydraulic press goes smush, 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 and a power hammer goes bam, 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 bam. And that, I, I'm saying that very specifically because a hydraulic press moves the steel in plastic deformation, deformation by applying pressure over time. All right, so you've got a, you know, my press is a 20-ton press, and I've put, I've got dies on there, and when I take this hot piece of steel and I set it between the dies, the dies have to come into contact with the steel, and then there's a, a short period of time, about a quarter of a second, where all of the slack in my hydraulic press is taken up, and it actually starts to create pressure against the billet, and then it will actually start to press the billet. Well, in all of that time, from the time I bring the billet over to the hydraulic press 
to the time that the hydraulic press actually starts to move the steel, the dyes are in contact with your steel and they're cooling it off. And that's a problem because we need our steel hot to move and to weld efficiently. Um, okay. For some of the listeners, uh, the way, I, and please correct me if I was wrong, mm-hmm. the way I was taught to learn the, the thermodynamics is <clears throat> cold is an absence of heat. So mm-hmm. if you put something hot in contact with something cold, it absorbs, it pulls the heat away. Right. So mm-hmm. if your dye is cold and you set something hot on it, it's sucking the heat out of it. Yep. And yep. if that happens too quickly, then what you're working becomes too cold. Mm-hmm. And you put stress into it and bad things happen. That is absolutely correct. That's, you know, the, the whole point of, of kind of where we're going with that. So, you know, a hydraulic press is cooling the surface before it applies pressure to it. So if you can, if you can kind of imagine the, the center of a big billet of steel, a big three-inch billet of steel, the center of that billet, that middle inch, is still almost 2,000 degrees while the outsides of the billet, the the top inch and the bottom inch that are in contact with the dies before pressure is involved, have cooled down to 1,700 degrees, which is still admittedly very, very hot, but it's not as hot as the center. So the center is going to move more. So the the center is going to squish out, kind of like, you know, you make some epic grilled cheese sandwich with like quarter of an inch of cheese in there and you squeeze it as you go to bite it and the cheese just kind of out the sides and it burns the top of your mouth because it and it's delicious and you love it anyways and it hurts (laughs) right but you can but you can kind of visualize that cheese squeezing out from the sides right if you if you if you push on the bread on top and bottom just a little too hard you lose all the cheese from the middle Hmm. right so when you're working a damascus billet with a hydraulic press, you have to keep in mind, it's going to try and move the center of that billet, just like that grilled cheese sandwich. It's going to squish the cheese out of the middle of your sandwich. And if the cold exterior resists that, Mm -hmm. that's a problem. Right. So you can get some significant pattern deformation from the way you're, uh, from the way you're applying force to your billet with your hydraulic press. Now, a power hammer is kind of the opposite of that. Not exactly, but kind of. Um, so, you know, going back to high school physics, if I take a 50-pound hammer and I smack something with it, boom, 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 that thing is going to get hotter, right? Oh, okay. Right. It's the energy. So a hy- it. Right. So a, hydraulic pre- or, so a hydraulic press is cooling the outside of your steel as it's working on it. Whereas a power hammer is sort of, if you've got a big power hammer, I'm not talking about a little 25 pounder, but if you've got a good size power hammer, it's actually heating the steel as it goes and more so on the outsides where it's hitting. So a power hammer is going to do most of its deformation on the outsides of the billet. Whereas a hydraulic press is going to do most of its deformation on the center of the billet. Hmm. Now, if you're doing, you know, a ladder pattern or a twist pattern or raindrop or, you know, some of the more basic patterns, who cares? It, 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 this is not a conversation that 
matters to you per se. As a side note, it makes me giggle when you start talking about ladder and twist being simple patterns. Oh, those. Oh, yes. <laughs> the rabbit hole goes way deeper than, than ladder and twist. Oh, so much deeper. <laughs> so yeah. much deeper. Um, so, you know, simple patterns in, in my shop, a ladder and a twist and a raindrop. And so they're, they're simple patterns. And it's not so much because uh, because I think of them as simple versus difficult. It's simple versus complex. So mosaic patterns, uh, let me back up. So if I build a Damascus billet and I forge it out into a bar length, if the pattern that I'm going for is expressed along the length of that bar, I consider that to be a simple pattern. If the pattern is expressed down the, the the short dimension of that bar, that is a complex pattern. Okay, so that's that's kind of a mosaic pattern where if I if I make this bar two feet long, I don't have two feet of pattern. I have one inch by one inch of pattern that I then have to turn sideways and figure out how to turn it into a blade. Oh, okay. Right. So that's to, in my shop. That's in my terminology. That's the difference between a simple pattern and a complex pattern. If I can forge it out into a bar and then just make a knife out of it, that's a simple pattern. If I forge it out into a bar and go, all right, now I have to figure out how to turn that into a blade sideways. That's a complex pattern. Mm. So those are those are mosaics, and that's a whole rabbit hole of craziness when you start getting into, especially like canister Damascus and so forth. But we're not there yet. We're still talking about how to actually take steel and smush it together and end up with one piece of steel. Yeah, we've talked about heat. Now we're talking about force. Right, right. So we've got our heel, our steel hot, and now we need to apply force to it because we're not in that weird physicist world where we can make it perfectly flat perfectly clean and we can smush it and move it on the inside or pound on mm -hmm. it and move it on the outside right yes and that's just exactly. a matter of your resources mm -hmm. yep now either one of those works just fine um if you only have one power to you man get it done you'll be fine um having both is really really nice really nice yeah um, now i've seen i've seen your traveling anvil which mm -hmm. The fact that it's the firing pin from a naval gun is pretty fucking awesome. <laughs> I love that. Anvil. I mean, <laughs> I love that. Anvil. I'm not gonna lie, you got some serious cool points for that anvil just right off. <laughs> uh, and and what's fun is most knife smiths know what that anvil is and go, "I don't want your anvil. <laughs> you can't have it. It's mine." <laughs> if I thought I could take you, I might kill you and take that anvil. <laughs> but I'm so uh <laughs> so actually USA knife maker um has has partnered up with a group that's making a, an anvil of the same basic type where it's a, a vertical post anvil but it's just not as cool as having the the firing pin stock from a navy battleship yeah. as your anvil <laughs> um how do you size an anvil for the job you're doing if we're going to make if we're going to make a simple pattern at Damascus how do you size your anvil? So the the easy answer is I don't care how big your anvil is, you want the next size up. <laughs> so it's like breast implants. Yeah, kinda, yeah. You you <laughs> you know, once 
once you start down this rabbit hole, you're always going to lust after the next biggest size. That being said, you can do perfectly appropriate, perfectly reasonable work with a 100-pound anvil. I would never try and use less than 100 pounds. That's just, there's just not enough anvil there for me to do any work on. Now, that's not to say I couldn't figure it out, but I would probably cuss a lot and, and somebody would owe me some whiskey. That's adding too much. That's adding unnecessary work. Right, right, yeah. Um, anything less than 100 pounds is just going to frustrate you. Um, 200 pounds is a really good staple uh, for knife makers and, and general blacksmiths. 200 pounds is a really good size because you can still fairly easily move the anvil around the shop. Um, Says the shave Sasquatch. It, oh, sh <laughs> shut up. <laughs> You could get a dolly or something. It's not that bad. But you, but once you get up above 200 pounds, you really want to put the anvil where it goes and leave it there. Um, you know, and, and I, you know, I, like I said, my shop is still part of my, my house. And hopefully next year I'm going to break ground and build a separate shop. And once I actually have a shop that I can set up, I'm buying me a 400-pound anvil. Um, but once I put that anvil in the shop, it, uh, it, it's going to stay right there and uh, you can just walk around it. <laughs> you know, the way I'm, the way I'm set up right now, when I'm not forging, I have to kind of tuck all my forging gear back into the kind of the, the corner, um, which, you know, I, I don't have to move my anvil far, but, you know, moving it two or three feet and that I've got a 200 pound anvil on a pretty impressive stand with a bunch of hammers and everything. The whole assembly weighs 300 something pounds it's not really much fun to move it if you don't have to. Um, so like I said, most knife makers get up to, you know, 150 or 200 pounds. That's plenty of anvil for most anybody who's not going to be doing this full time with a dedicated shop where they're setting their tools up and leaving them in place. Now, in answer to your actual question, how do you properly size an anvil? Your anvil should be 10 times the weight of the hammer that you're using. Which means if you're using a three pound hammer, you should be using a 300 pound anvil. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not using a 300 pound anvil and I use a three pound hammer all the time. Although this, eh, I guess technically I am because you know, the stand and it, the, the, the whole weight of the assembly counts. So, you know, you you want to be about 10 times, and that's not necessarily a you should be. It's a that's your your maximum efficiency point. Anything past that, if I have a 400-pound anvil and I'm using a three-pound hammer, the anvil is heavier than I can possibly get the value out of with my three-pound hammer. You've got either right. more area or more mass than you're using. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so your your maximum efficiency comes from 10 times your hammer weight. But if you're using most most knife makers should be using a two and a half to a three pound hammer and a 200 pound anvil is plenty for anything you're going to be doing. Um, no problem. Mm. Um, now, when you get into strikers and, and you've got three guys using five pound hammers, you really want that four, 400 pound anvil if you can get a hold of it. You really do. Because that turns into 15 or 20 pounds. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, I can, I can get a couple of strikers working on my 200 pound anvil, but, but it's going to dance. Uh, 
there's enough mass, there's enough velocity, there's enough, you know, kinetic energy transferred to the anvil by that five pound sledgehammer that the anvil is going to bounce slightly. If they start working in rhythm, then. Right. Then the anvil is literally going to dance around the garage. Something about wavelengths and. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All that, that sciencey stuff. Mm. All I know is it dances and I got to chase it and move it and I don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, you know, that, that's the, the proper blacksmith's answer to your question, how to properly size an anvil. You want an anvil that's 10 times, 10 times the size of your hammer. Um, for most knife makers, that's going to be 150 to 200 pounds. That's plenty of anvil. Be happy. All right. So flux. Flux. I've watched a couple of episodes of Forged in Fire. Mm -hmm. Apparently, you're supposed to throw a bunch of it on the floor. Yes. And then roll. Yes, that's the proper place for the flux. Yeah. And that's also sometimes borax. Is that – am I misunderstanding? So, borax is boric acid, and that's kind of the standard bearer of, you know, blacksmith's flux. Uh, just because it melts at the appropriate temperature – it is very hygroscopic, which means that it seeks small uh, crevices to work its way into, which is kind of advantageous for what we're trying to use it for. It is a extremely aggressive acid when it's molten because it's boric acid. So it's going to clean the surface of any iron oxide. Um, iron oxide, by the way, is the absolute bane of your existence if you're trying to make Damascus. You hate iron oxide. Iron oxide sucks. Um, iron oxide for of being clean. Yes, iron oxide for reference is that black flaky scale stuff that comes off of your steel as you're forging it, right? So iron oxide really happens pretty easily once you get above 1400 degrees with iron, and uh, it kind of screws up your welds. Okay, so boric acid is the standard flux. It melts at 1450, I think. It's very close to that same temperature. Once it melts, it creates this nice barrier that inhibits oxygen from your from contacting your steel. If there's no oxygen, there's no iron oxide. If there is any iron oxide in place before it melts, then it will acidically clean your steel. It's very liquidy flux. It's it's just a very good medium to use as a flux for Blacksmith. It helps you get the clean that you were talking about earlier about needing. Yes, yes, that that truly from a from a truly chemically speaking sense, clean no. surface. Do you try to get it between the layers? How how should you be using flux? So I use I I have a an old you know Starbucks tin of cocoa that I've punched a couple of holes in the top and use it like a like a little shaker. But you really just need to sprinkle it on the top. It takes very little flux to do what you're trying to Between do. Between each layer on the top or? Uh, I just, it, it, it will, like I said, because it is hygroscopic, it will try and work its way into small crevices. Okay. It, 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 it's like super glue in that way where, you know, if you put super thin super glue on something, it's going to work its way into all the little cracks. Like, it's, you know. It's like it sucks into, you know, the, the fibers of whatever it is you're super gluing. Right? So its main purpose is just to inhibit all the oxygen from getting into those same spots. Yes. Right? Its actual purpose is to inhibit oxygen. Mm -hmm. Okay. It has side benefits of lowering the melting temperature very slightly. 
and also uh, cleaning any iron oxide that's in place beforehand. So there's some side benefits to it as well. Yeah. Um, now, that being said, it's not at all necessary. So is that the, the no flux club that you, mm-hmm. you hear some of the people on Forged and Fire and other podcasts and stuff talk about? Yes. If, if, you, if you know what you're looking at in the forge, you know what your steel is supposed to look like at welding temperature, you know how to run your forge at a proper reducing atmosphere. So your your reducing atmosphere is when there is more fuel in your forge chamber than there is oxygen to burn it because fire requires fuel and oxygen, right? Mm-hmm. So if the fuel in your forge chamber burns up all the available oxygen and there's still fuel left over, then there's no oxygen left to oxidize your steel. Right, so it's very important that you're running your forge at a at a correct atmosphere. It's very important that you are are you know monitoring your steel in the forge for the proper temperature because if you overcook it, it's going to cause problems. Um, and it's very important that you there, there's a lot of techniques and processes to pulling off a no flux weld that are are very simple in actuality but very difficult to explain to you without, you know, pointing it at a a piece of steel in the forge that's the right temperature and going right there, that, that's what you want to see. You know what I mean? Hmm. Um, So it's not that difficult. takes a little bit of practice. Simple in theory, hard in execution. It's, if you don't have somebody to show you firsthand, it can be hard to to kind of you know wander in the wilderness and stumble upon it, but once you get it, once you do it once appropriately and correctly, you're fine. You'll go, oh, that's what I'm looking for. Okay, so you know what I mean. Do people use so much flux out of a lack of confidence? Okay. Oh, because they're stupid. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, because they are inexperienced in the <laughs> no, it, the flux is not glue. And overfluxing a billet is actually a really bad idea because that flux is likely to get trapped in between your layers if you don't get it squished out properly. And then you've got flux inclusions and you'll you'll ruin your billet because you overfluxed it. And it'll cause all the problems you are trying to avoid. Right, right. You know, it's it's all everything you're doing in the process of of heating and manipulating your billet in in the hydraulic press or the power hammer or whatever you have, everything should be centered around the idea of keep it clean. Everything is about cleaning it, right? Um, so your flux is just there to help you clean the steel. And it gets all in your forge and stuff too. So I know mm-hmm. they, they talked about that on a couple of episodes of Forged and Fire that people use so much that... Oh, it'll just puddle... Yeah, it'll puddle in the bottom, and it, when the forge cools off, the, the flux basically turns to glass, and you have to chip it out with a rock. It's a nightmare. And it won't fix all the mistakes you made. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, now, I, I have a forge that I've used for years and years and years, and every couple of years, I'll take it apart and chip all the, the flux out of it and kind of reline it with some fresh satanite and all that. And it's good for a couple more years and so forth. But again, I sprinkle my flux on there. I don't, you know, throw it on by the handful. 
I'm sorry, did you say Satanite? Yes, Satanite. That is one of the most common, uh, um, oh, what's the, what's the term? Uh, refractory. No, it's a refractory cement, um, or refractory liner. It's a, it's a special type of cement that is, um, very stable at high temperatures. Uh, bubble alumina refractory is another com common one. Um, uh, Rutland's makes another one, castable refractory. Uh, but it's basically a cement that you can put into a forge that won't break down at high temperatures. Um, Satanite is one of the more common ones. Uh, it's one of my favorites because it's what I use for uh, clay coating the blades that I'm going to do hamon on, which is a whole big other conversation. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're going to have that one. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about some of the different for, or different types of forge welding. Uh, yes, got the the mono steel cladding, sand Mayan, layered steel. Um, so I'm 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 going to take a slight issue with the the approach to this conversation. Okay. Um, forge welding That's is forge... you can do whatever you want. Kyle is going to edit it out, so you can feel free to voice any objection you want. <laughs> forge welding. Is forge welding is forge welding. Okay. Um, it doesn't matter what pattern you're going for. The actual process of welding is the same every time. Get it up to the appropriate temperature, apply force until all of the layers contact each other, and you have forge weld. Okay. If you if you do it properly and cleanly. Now, the different patterns that you're talking about here, cladding and sandmai and layered and so forth, that's just how you set up your pattern before you forge weld it. Okay. Okay. So, you know, cladding steel, I assume you're talking about like a stainless steel cladding. Yeah. Um, you know, that's that's typically a four sixteen stainless steel over top of like a ten eighty four or W two or eighty CRV two or you know, some some high carbon tool steel of of you know, it, it that's not a really picky uh thing. Now I'm sorry, before we go too far down this, mm -hmm. I wanted to start with what are some of the advantages of folding mono steel when you have the same steel and you fold it if I'm not mistaken, that's kind of the Japanese Advantages style. Advantages is probably a, a bridge too far. Um, All right. Why, why did people do it back in the day? Ah, okay. I see, I see the thrust of your question. They did it back in the day because they didn't have mono steel, and they wanted mono steel. So you have to understand that, you know, uh, uh, in, in most European cultures and in the Japanese and the Chinese cultures, um, Pretty much everywhere that was not uh, India and Syria and the Middle East where they were doing crucible steels, they were doing bloomery steels, okay? So they would make this big chimney-looking thing, and they would pour iron in the top and then charcoal and iron and charcoal and iron and charcoal, and they'd kind of feed it for a day or two. And at the end of the day, they'd break the chimney apart, and in the center of it, there would be this big spongy mass of iron that had melted on its way down the chimney and had picked up some carbon from the the associate uh, from the, the the nearby charcoal in the process and you had what was called bloom steel okay now this was the the most common way of making wrought iron was you know do the same thing if you run your fire too hot it doesn't have time to pick up uh pick up carbon on its way down 
Um, but if you run it at the right temperature, you pick up carbon and you end up with bloom steel. Okay. Now the problem is it's this big spongy thing that doesn't look like any kind of steel you would ever want in a sword. It's very fragile. Parts of it are cast iron. Parts of it are mild. Parts of it are proper, you know, tool steel percentages of carbon. You know, there's a large, large inclusions of silica and sand and uh, little bits of charcoal and so forth and crap and not appropriate for making a knife or a sword out of. So what they would do is they would take that sponge and smush it and just try and take all the air out of it right and it and parts would break off and it was terrible and they would just kind of kind of break it in half and set it on top and smush it again and, and forge weld it back to itself and they'd keep doing that and keep doing that and keep doing that and eventually after you know 15 maybe 20 folds they would have something that you or i would actually recognize as a bar of steel They've finally worked out enough of those impurities. They finally uh, homogenized the carbon content throughout the bar enough that they have sort of kind of a monosteel. Okay, so you know when the when the Japanese were folding their steel all these times, it wasn't to make it pretty. It wasn't to make it you know. Uh, it wasn't for any aesthetic benefit. It was because they started out with this just terrible beginning point and they it was to drive out the impurities yeah and they needed a a consistent bar of steel at their end point and so they they actually got a lot better at it there is one thing that i will say that the japanese did a lot better than the europeans is japanese got a lot better at kind of visually judging the qualities of the steel um, because uh high carbon steel when you heat it 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 colors differently than mild steel slightly and they would call it jeweled steel and you know they could kind of judge by the the from the sponge as it was cold they could kind of judge how much carbon was in this chunk and how much carbon was in that chunk and they got pretty good at figuring out which chunks to put together to end up with the carbon content that they wanted cool whereas the europeans would just go hey that's steel smush it all together let's go right <laughs> So there was a lot more, uh, shall we say, variety of quality in the, the Viking steels. And by variety, I mean between you know 1075 and 1095. They were all good quality carbon contents, but the smith may not know exactly what he was going to get when he started, whereas the Japanese, they kind of would, just judging from how much of what they put in at the beginning. But either way, they were starting out with this big spongy mass, and they were folding it and folding it and folding it until, you know, all the air pockets were gone, and all the bits of charcoal had burned out, and the silica had banded throughout and was you know, was consistent, and the you know they didn't have chunks over here that were you know almost cast iron and chunks over here that were mild steel. They were, they had kind of evened out that carbon content throughout. Okay, so that was the process. That was the reason for folding mono steel was because they didn't start with mono steel and they really wanted mono steel. Okay, mm. it would be the same thing as me right now taking a piece of mild steel and a piece of W2 and folding them together and folding it and folding it and folding it. Well, once you get up to about 2000 layers, you have you have layered it so thinly that, you know, the individual layers are only a couple of microns thick. You've basically got mono steel. You there's no visually discernible pattern when you get up to two thousand layers. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, if I took mild steel and W2 in equal uh, quantities, when I was done, I would have basically 1075 or so, right? So if I wanted 1075 and I wanted to work for it instead of just calling up Aldo Bruno and getting some 1075, <laughs> that's how I could do it, right? Well, yep. back then they didn't have no Aldo Bruno. So if they wanted 1095, they had to, you know, kind of come up with some way of putting together pieces to get there. So that was the, the whole forge welding of mono steel. Um, given the technology and the resources we have today, ain't no damn reason to do that. Just don't. And then cladding, modern cladding, a lot of times is putting a corrosion resistant shell mm -hmm. on a high carbon edge. Mm -hmm. but back in an earlier day, it was a way to use a small amount of high carbon mm -hmm. or high quality steel. Yes. Because they just put, put a ton of work mm -hmm. into making five pounds of high quality, you know, basically 1095. Well, why would they make, you know, why would they take that five pounds of steel and make two swords out of it when they could take that five pounds of steel and make six swords out of it, right? Because the center gives you the cutting edge and mm -hmm. the rest of it is just filler. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now... There were some schools of thought that that was done not so much as a material savings technique as it was a, a way to introduce a more resilient steel into the mix and kind of get these different properties of the – I don't know that I particularly believe that. Um, as a maker, I'm going to say it was all about saving the dollar. I, well, not really saving the the dollar particularly so much as you know again this was a very very scarce resource especially in japan a much more common resource in europe um, you would very rarely see the europeans trying to mix a, a low quality steel into a high quality steel just because iron ore was so much easier to get a hold of in europe um, iron ore is a very very rare resource on the japanese islands so they did not waste any of it if they could help it Right. Hmm. So it's it's more of a, a, you know, not a recycling technique, but, you know, they would they would make they would they would run this huge Tatara furnace. And at the end of it, they would have hundreds of pounds of this bloomery steel. And out of those, you know, 500 pounds, maybe 80 to 100 would be actually sword quality steel. And the rest of it would be turned into, you know, pots and it would be turned into, you know, small knives and uh, various implements and tools for other craftsmen, things like that. But it wouldn't be turned into swords. Well, because of the scarcity of that high quality of steel, they were trying to stretch it and get the most effect out of it that they could, um, especially for, you know, in when you look at like historically war times where you know, it, it's a hugely labor intensive process to end up with, you know, five pounds of steel and we need to have 10 swords done by the end of the month and we only got five pounds of steel. How can we get it done? I, I don't think that the cost of it was particularly a driving factor so much as this is all we have and we got to figure out how to make what we got to make out of what we have. Um, it, it, in my in my reading of a lot of the history of Japanese swords, it was much more, you know, the, the different uh, construction methods were much more about uh, maximizing the use of their high quality materials and not wasting. 
than anything else. I use the classic uh, availability and demand mm -hmm. ratio to determine price. Sure. So in this case, when 500 pounds gives you 80 pounds, mm -hmm. the availability is low and the demand is high, so that's expensive. <clears throat> well, and you have the time yeah, but, the time cost of doing all that takes a long long time. Yeah, but but at the same time you're thinking of this from the perspective of a free market where somebody comes to you and buys it or doesn't. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's true. In the time frame I'm talking about, uh, the 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 swordsmith was effectively a serf of the local shogun, <laughs> and you know, not he wasn't a slave particularly, but everything. But he, if it wasn't done, you don't get to eat. Pretty much, yeah. You know, he's like, no, you. That's what you do. You make swords for me because we got to go to war in a couple of months, and I need you know 500 swords to go to war, and uh, you're the guy that makes swords, so. Hop up on it. Let's go. You know, five hundred by the end of the month, or you're sure head. No pressure. <sighs> yeah, I mean, not not to that extent, but yeah, kind of. You know, it's this is your job, and you go make swords. And you know, it was it was a much more uh, it was a much more societal thing than a a price thing. You know, so it, from from our standpoint here, everything that you and I make is a commodity. You know, nobody has to buy our thing. But at that time, if they want to be cool, they will. well, obviously, I mean, yeah. But at the time, you know, it's it's real hard to put together an army of, you know, 2000 guys if you don't have 2000 weapons to give those 2000 guys. So, right? So modern cladding is about more or less corrosion resistance versus edge performance and mm -hmm. traditional cladding was about stretching resources. Would that be? I, I would, in my personal uh, reading of a lot of the history, it, especially specifically to the Japanese, I'm not as versed in the in the European culture and in history. Um, and again, like I said, the European culture they didn't do nearly as much cladding because eh, they had a lot of they iron, right? They didn't need to as much. Um, whereas the Japanese, they really did. Um, yeah, I, I would definitely say that cladding historically was a, you know, was a was a means of stretching resources uh, as needed, um, and you you kind of see that borne out as you go later in the history where war was not so much a thing. You started to see that the the cladding became a much more esoteric thing where they were you know kind of going for effect more than you know structure uh, with the, with different styles of cladding, which could bring us to the next point, which I may run into a, a trademark issue. I'm not sure. <laughs> Does Cold Steel listen? Um, you know, if they do, I... I it's still, it still just absolutely <laughs> flabbergasts me that they could possibly copyright or trademark San Mai. It, well... The ball to try to copyright it—that's actually what impressed me more. It's—it's it's literally just the Japanese words for sandwich. Actually, three layers. <laughs> Each ni san, one, two, three, san mai, three layers, three layers. <laughs> you have, you have, you have copyrighted the term sandwich. <laughs> From. Tens of thousands of years ago, but no one found it. Right. Like, yeah. how, how'd you pull that off, Lynn? How do, 
we're also trying to we're also talking about a company that sued over the yeah we're we're almost uh bordering on the politics uh yeah all right I, I will say, you know, Lynn stops by my table at, at Blade Show every year, and I like Lynn. He's a great guy, but he just – he gets over the top with his enthusiasm for knives, and that's all I have to say about that. That's funny. He never stops by my booth. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so San Mai. Well, there there is something to be said for for having a table in the middle of all the big hats of the ABS. Right. Just for the record, one uh, year I'll Blade, have my own big hat. A Blade Show West this year. I'm going to do a table instead of a booth. Oh, you're going to Blade Show uh, West? I am. I'm a little jealous. I, I I thought about trying to do it, but I I just don't have any knives. <laughs> I don't have anything. You know, uh, I I'm actually in a little bit of a bind. I think I'm going to have five to take. Mm-hmm. But uh, Crazy Uncle E mm-hmm. uh, offered to let me come stay in Montana for a couple of days. Ooh, we had so, I would go just for my – oh. So yeah. side, side conversation, uh, a really good friend of mine. I've known her for 20-something years. We taught martial arts together for years and years, and I was the, the officiant at her wedding on top of the Grand Tetons. Ooh. Oh, oh you, I'm, I'm actually looking at a picture of it right now. It hangs in my office. Oh. So beautiful. I was wearing my kilt, so you know, obviously, a sight to behold. Hey, are you coming? Hey, are you coming the twelfth to um, this weekend? Yeah, uh, yeah, to Old Town Cutlery. By the time people hear this, that'll have already happened by Ah, a week. Right. So last weekend, I am going to Old Town. I'm confused. Um, How do you? You will have been uh, to Old Town Cutlery. I will have. Yeah. I will have been going to the place that we are talking about in the future tense that happened last weekend. Yes. Yeah. Will you have – because if you are, that will help solidify my kilt question. Have been at the thing, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're you're so, just wanting another yeah. excuse to wear your kilt when, and not look yeah, totally yeah. out of place. Well, as long as Mark and I aren't the only two in kilts, then I'm solid. Oh, I, I – I, not to come off in any weird type of way, Mark looks really good in a kilt. You know, especially now that he's got a beard. <laughs> and he's got the whole sporan and everything. Like, he really sells that kilt. It, that that well, fits him nicely. You know, it's the accent. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, if I had that accent, I could wear anything I want. All right, Kyle, what's, what's next on the thing we're supposed to be talking about with <laughs> – uh, I think we're on uh, full- We're talking about men in dresses now. What happened? Fold layer yeah. yeah, folding and layering different steels. Yeah. Why why'd they start doing more ornamental thing? Was it just purely for the artistic creation or So we we kind of touched on that a, a minute ago as we were talking about the the bloom steel and and how we took this this spongy terrible mass of inconsistency and turned it into bar steel. But yeah, as they kind of went through history and the techniques got better and they kind of got you know a, a better footing underneath them of, of what they were doing and why they were doing it certainly there was some artistic expression that started to come out about well I, I can make it look prettier than you can type of stuff um and some of it was also uh like i alluded to earlier it, like in the in a lot of migration era viking swords and er, earlier middle ages swords you would see twist patterns very frequent, very very frequently in 
the finished swords. And that was a very visually evident uh, proof of the quality of the smith. Because, like I said, that's that's like one of the most abusive things you can do to a piece of pattern-welded steel is twist it. Um, because once you twist it, all bets are off. You either nailed it or it's trash. That's the end of the conversation, right? Okay. So when you saw a twisted steel core in a uh, in a Viking sword or a twisted steel, um, you know, edge wrap or something like that, that was the smith going, I know what the fuck I'm doing, and uh, you better represent. Yeah, well, right? because, again, any flaw will show up. When you put the twist in there, mm -hmm. if you look at it, if there's a flaw, you're going to be able to see it. Right, yeah, become and it it'll just open up huge it's it's distinctly obvious when a weld flaw opens up under a twist because it just separates and you know, i mean you can put your finger in there like oh there's a there's a hole there where there shouldn't be a hole you know so story of my life <laughs> hey so <laughs> if, so especially when you're looking at historical examples anytime you see a twist that's almost always somebody proving their steel, uh, proving their weld process, proving the quality of their product. And there's there's a couple of other patterns in along that nature that were done to kind of show off the quality of the workmanship. Uh, but most others were purely an aesthetic thing. You know, we we think it looks better if we do it that way or this way or, you know. Your leaf and your herring bone and, and that. Sure, that sure. Tips. One of, and, and actually, going back over to kind of the Japanese culture, that was one of the, the major uh, signature identifiers of different sword schools or different forging schools because – you know, remember, we started out with this big spongy mass, and they would just kind of fold it on itself and fold it on itself and fold it on itself until it was a bar stock. There are visual identifiers of how you fold it on itself in the finished product, which they would call hada. And each individual school would have their own process of, of how they would fold it. Like they would fold it lengthwise twice and then widthwise once and then lengthwise twice and then widthwise once and then lengthwise twice and then widthwise once. And, it'd be, uh, and then the other school at the other village, they would go lengthwise, then widthwise, then lengthwise, then widthwise, and then lengthwise, then widthwise. And then the other school. I said it's like a fingerprint in the steel. You can right, you right, can right. the pattern and identify at least mm -hmm. the school, if not the maker. Right, exactly. And you you could tell from looking at the hada how the steel was folded, and that would give you a really good indication of which school made the sword. And then you could look at various other identifiers and figure out, you know, which time period that sword was made and so on and so forth. And, you know, that was kind of a nice thing, uh, you know, historically speaking, because it gives us a lot of insight into how old the sword was and who made it without even looking at the signature. Although, you know, Japanese swords were really good about having signatures on them if they were not terribly damaged. Um, very, very few European swords were ever signed in any meaningful manner. So it's really difficult to historically go back and figure out, you know, where did this sword come from? Who made this sword? What did they make it out of? You know, why did they do it this way? We don't know. With the Europeans, you're down to style, shape, and materials. And, you know, just just from from, uh, you know, morphotyping different shapes over time periods, 
we can look at a you know if you find a sword in a in a river or a grave or in a you know with a with a, a metal detector somewhere you pull that sword out and you can kind of get an idea of what time period that sword came from but that's kind of it that's that's more or less that's not the maker's name no you know yeah like you could you can kind of you know figure out within a 50 year frame when it came from but not necessarily where um you know, there are certain time periods where, you know, this shape, well, this shape is Germanic and this shape is Romanic and this shape is Greek. So in that time period with this shape, I can tell you kind of where it came from, but I'm still looking at, you know, thousands of square miles of potential locations. And hundreds whereas, Yeah. Whereas, you know, Japanese, you know, somebody who really knows their stuff can look at an antique Japanese sword and say, oh, yeah, it came from this village. And it was probably made for, by one of these three guys. And I'm not sure exactly which because they all work for this. Like there's, there's history there that can actually be researched. And that's, you know, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, one of the, uh, one of the, the bad things about the, the European swords is it's really difficult to get into the real nitty gritty history of where the sword came from and how it was made and who made it and why they made it this way and you know all of that kind of stuff because we just don't know there's no real way to prove uh you know which smiths in which area is one of the other things that made like the Ulfbrecht sword sword so special is he signed it yeah and and we can we found you know several of them that were signed by the same guy and so we can look at them and go yeah those were all made by the same guy and he did them all like this way. And that's really impressive because we don't know how he managed to do that with the techniques he had available to him at the time and stuff like that. Well, and it mirrors the time period from hundreds of years to probably a 20 year window. Maybe. Sure. Sure. Yeah. You know, you know, given at the time a lifespan of 50 years was, man, you're 50 years old. You are old. And, you know, you wouldn't be signing your work in your, you know, teens and twenties because you're not a master Smith. You're not showing off anything so yeah you know from 25 ish to 30 all the way up to your mid 40s and 50s that was your working life that's it um so yeah you can kind of scale down your your search for historical clues and say you know within this 30 years that's where this Ulfbrecht sword came from and we have an idea of where he lives so it came from over there and it's kind of given some clues, historically speaking, to other swords that were very similar in style and composition that probably would have come very frequently after because that guy, Ulfbrick, who was making those swords, he had students. They picked up on it. So, you know, there's there's a there's a touchstone there that we can look at and go, all right, here's where that sword started and kind of progressed through history uh, a little bit this way type of stuff we got a little sidetracked on san mai and never actually defined what it is or and why it's significant um well i mean i kind of defined it san mai is, is japanese for three layers so it, it's a sandwich so it's a, it's the japanese interpretation of cladding would that be correct i i wouldn't so cladding in our 
modern parlance is probably inappropriate to apply to Japanese Sanmai, uh, in that, you know, in the, in, in the Japanese sense, in the time frame that that was being used, again, going back to our previous conversation, that was probably a process of utilizing resources as appropriately as possible. I don't think they were particularly using it to maximize the mechanical properties of their of their steels the way that we would be using it now you know where we're where we're modernly taking uh, they weren't trying to make an alloy they were just trying to stretch the quality steel as far as possible in in most cases absolutely in absolutely um whereas you know now we would be taking 416 stainless and putting it over top of W2 because we want the surface of the blade as much as possible to be this stainless steel that's impervious to rust and corrosion. But I still want the edge to be this, you know, high carbon tool steel that sharpens easily and doesn't require, you know, $200 diamond stones to do anything to sharpen it. You know, so there's, there's some mechanical uh, advantages to doing it now. Whereas then I don't think I, in my personal opinion, I don't think it was done for a mechanical advantage so much as a resource advantage. Um, resource wise, there's no reason for me in a modern sense to put 416 over top of W2 other than people buy it and it looks pretty. Well, it looks pretty is an important factor. It, it looks pretty is a huge factor when you get into the kind of industry that you and I play in. Absolutely. But it's not a mechanical factor. You know what I mean? Yeah, and you're starting to run out of some of that W2 that you bought the 1,000 pounds or whatever of. I mean, I've used half of it. I don't know if that's running out. I have I have more than you probably want to pick up and walk around with. Yeah. <laughs> I certainly have more than I want to pick up and walk around with. And given with. the common lifespan of a Yeti, that's, that's probably half as much <laughs> as he'll ever need. I, I don't know. I mean, I've been doing this for 15 years. I bought that a couple years in. So over the last 12 or 13 years, I've used about 400 pounds. I, I'm trying not to use my old stock uh, unless it's a particularly nice knife that I want really want to use that steel on. Uh, but I don't think I've got 20 years worth of W2 laid up in the, in the hole. I, I may have 10 or 12. So get them while you can. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You were talking about some different metals that can be combined for cladding. Um, mm -hmm. Are there any guidelines on what steels can be mated and what steels can't? Or Can is a whole <laughs> different conversation than should. And we need to be specific about that. Um, if, you are, if you are tenacious and really want to get it going, um, there's very few can'ts in this. It cannot uh, in this in this conversation. Can't is entirely different than should. Right, right. Um, if if we're speaking to people who are looking to you know give this a shot and come up with something a little bit different and and try a technique that they may not have tried before, I would I would highly suggest that you start out with. Um, wrought iron over like 1084, uh, 5160 is not too bad, something like that. Um, and the reason for that is the wrought iron is very, is relatively soft. It moves nicely. Um, 
it is a little bit of a wrought iron specifically is a little bit of a problem to weld because it wants to be welded a lot higher temperature it wants to be welded at like 2200 um so there's a little bit of that but you're still going to get some really nice texture and grain out of it which looks really nice from a beginner standpoint i would not suggest that you try and do a stainless steel cladding over top of a high carbon tool steel really difficult to do without power tools uh can be done if you're if you're really tenacious, you can do it, man. I have faith in you. <laughs> Rock on. Send me pictures. I want to see it. But uh, if you're asking my advice, I wouldn't try it without power tools. Um, you're just you're setting yourself up for a lot of frustration um, and, and a lot of annoyance and probably a lot of a lot of wasted material. If you're gonna try and do that a shim stock of pure nickel between the stainless steel and the high carbon tool steel will increase your odds of success dramatically. But man, you want power tools if you're gonna do a stainless cladding over top of a, uh, a high carbon tool steel. Use a four series stainless, uh, 416, 412, 410 uh, are, all, are all good. Don't use 440, it's, it's you know problematic. Um, I. I have talked to guys who have really good luck with three series stainless, 300 series stainless. I personally have never had good good luck with 300 series. Every single billet I've ever tried with a 300 series stainless has failed. Uh, and maybe I just suck. I don't know. <laughs> but my four series st yeah. stainless has worked just fine. So I'm not saying, I'm just saying. The four series stainless still has some uh, yeah, four, iron yes, in it. Four series, well. Where though? I would hope any stainless has iron well, in it. Uh, four but series I mean, stainless uh, still has carbon in it. It's still a yeah, it's carbon. still an austenitic stainless, whereas three series stainless um, has very little carbon in it, and it has uh, generally a lot of I think phosphorus in it. Um, it's just it's a good machining steel, a good machining stainless. Um, but I. I just hate 300 series stainless. I've tried, I've used it on guards over the years and I just hate it. It's a pain in the butt to file and grind and polish. And oh, I just hate 300 series. <laughs> Four, 416 stainless is so much softer. Use that. You'll appreciate it so much more, I promise. How different can the steels be? And again, we're, we're now into practicality, not physically possible. How much difference can you have in the steels and still have them work, play nice together? That probably depends on what pattern you want to do because mm -hmm. uh, the different steels react to the different things. Like uh, that's one of the questions we have later for, for etching. So let's go back to my my very first uh, uh, kind of imaginary imagination experiment. We were talking about the cheese wheels, right? Mm -hmm. So if, if 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 both cheese wheels are a type of cheddar. This is probably going to work just fine, right? You know, cheddar and cheddar. Yeah, we've got cheddar. It's just one half is a white cheddar and one half is a yellow cheddar. Okay, right? Well, what if one half is a Swiss cheese? It's still going to stick together. The, the difference with steel is it, it all has to do with the expansion and contraction rates of the steel, not so much in the in the forging and the working process as the heat treating mm -hmm. process. That's where you get into a lot of trouble. Um, so for instance, one of the, one of the most common, one of the most common mixes of steels is 1084 
and 15N20. All right, 1084 is a simple steel. It's a high carbon tool steel. It's just barely hyper eutectoid, uh, you know, 0.084% or 0.84% carbon. Pretty much nothing else. There's a little silica, some manganese, good stuff like that. All right, 15N20 is basically 1075 steel with nickel in it. All right, so it's 0.75% nickel plus, uh, I think, 0.2%, I'm sorry, 0.75% carbon with, I think, 0.2% nickel. Um, I'd have to look at a data sheet to remember exactly, but it's, I think that's what the uh, 15N20 is, the 0.2%, I think. Anyways, there's nickel in it. But the, the important thing to note is we've got very close carbon contents. 74 or 0.74%, 0.84%, pretty similar, okay? Well, what that means is when I go to heat treat this, I'm going to heat it up to an austenizing temperature where the carbon is moving around in the in the iron lattice work, and then I'm going to quench it in my oil, and it's going to, it's going to trap all that carbon in the lattice work, and it's going to physically change the size of my steel. Okay, if, if if you if you can get precise enough equipment to actually measure it, you can take a blank of steel and you measure it to be precisely ten inches, and then you harden it, and you'll find that it's ten point zero one inches. Right? It's physically grown because martensite is a physically larger structure than perlite. Okay. Well. Because the carbon content of 1084 and 15 and 20 is so similar, that growth rate between martensite and perlite is very similar. So when I use those two steels for Damascus and I heat treat it, the end result, both of those steels are pretty much the same. Very little difference. Okay. If I took for a for a, a larger example, W2, which is 0.095% carbon, uh, not really any nickel. There's a little vanadium in there, carbide refiner, stuff like that. Good stuff, right? 0.95% carbon, right? And then I mix that with, uh, let's say, 5160. Um, which is 0.06% or 0.6% carbon. It's got a bunch of chromium in there as a carbide reformer and moderately uh, stain resistant, right? But because of the chromium in the 5160, it's going to expand and contract at a drastically different rate than the W2. I have a much higher chance of those two ripping apart at the welds after heat treat because the W2 is going to be physically a larger size than the 5160. The 5160 is going to contract more in the heat treating process. That's one of the really dangerous things about like O1 and L6, which is another one of the really popular um, Damascus mixes. Because of all the alloying compound in O1 and L6, you have to, uh, in your normalizing cycle, cool them in a very, very controlled manner. Uh, you need to have a electrically controlled oven set up for an annealing cycle 
straight out of your welding cycles and, and layering up your Damascus. You, you, you take your O1 and L6, you do all your Damascus, you keep that whole billet at a welding temperature throughout your whole process. And when you're done, you take the billet and immediately put into your tempering oven as an annealing cycle. And it, it won't shear itself apart. I had a student not too long ago, uh, a couple months ago, was making an axe, uh, making it like a tomahawk axe out of uh, out of mild steel with a 1095 bit. And he accidentally used 5160 as the bit and made the made the, the tomahawk up, came out really nice. Everything was really nice. He went to heat treat it and it literally split the 5160 down the center of the of the, the, the high carbon 5160 because of of the way the the mild strap on the tomahawk was pulling against the 5160 in the process of it cooling down to room temperature. So that's the real danger of playing with different alloying compounds. You can do it all, you know, steel is steel is steel. You can get it to stick. The trick is gonna be getting it back to room temperature without coming apart. As you become less and less sim similar or as you add alloying compounds, that becomes more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. You know, th and those are the two really common uh, alloying uh, compounds to start out with. If you're, if you're kind of getting into this journey, start out with 1084 and 15 and 20. Uh, it doesn't take anything fancy. doesn't take any, anything impressive um, to pull it off. You just got to learn how to weld it. You know, and then step up in difficulty from there. You can get into, you know, stainless steel claddings and wrought iron claddings. And, you know, you can get into more uh, boutique custom uh, compounds from there. But get get a basic understanding of the techniques and the processes that you're using to get an end product before you make your end product more difficult. Why are uh, silver and nickel alloys used in Damascus a lot? Nickel... Um, so going back to the 1084 and the 15 and 20 is one of my favorite. It really is one of my favorite alloys of Damascus because again, the 1084 is 0.84% carbon and a little bit of manganese. Manganese helps the hardening. Cool. Manganese, when I go to put it into my etchant, my ferric chloride or my coffee or my nitric acid or whatever I'm going to use to etch the steel, the manganese is going to react with that etchant and etch very aggressively. It's going to, you know, eat away at that steel uh, aggressively, right? Well, the 15 and 20 is 1075 with some nickel in it. Well, the nickel, when I put that same steel into the etchant, whether the ferric chloride or the coffee or the nitric or whatever, is going to resist the etchant. So it's going to not etch aggressively. And that's how you get that topography. That's how you get that that visual evidence of the layers. Because when I put the two of those together into a Damascus billet, and I put that Damascus billet into the etchant, the etchant is going to eat away at the 1084, but not at the 15 and 20 because of the nickel. So that's the reason for the nickel in there is it inhibits the chemical reaction with the etchant and keeps it from eating away at that steel and creates a, a, a topography if you etch it long enough that you can feel the, the, the 
texture of the difference in those two steels with your finger. So it, it helps give you that really defined line. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that'll be the layer that doesn't turn black with the ferrochloride. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. Cool. So uh, a couple of our questions the, from I, I Instagram. I love how we've gone for like two hours or so, and we haven't even talked about any patterning, just the process. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what are, what's your uh, what's your favorite pattern? My favorite pattern is uh, a feathered W pattern. All right, so okay. um, so pretty much most patterns. If you're not starting off with a canister, most patterns are going to start off with a a block of steel we call a billet, which is layers of thin uh, or, or thin pieces of metal stacked up in layers to create a big block. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Now, I'm again, I'm using 1084 and 15 and 20 very frequently. Uh, I use pretty much uh, 0.09 or I'm sorry, 0. 0.9. Yeah, no, that was right. 0. 0.09 inch thick steel uh, for my layers. Um, I either get it from Aldo Bruno or from New, from uh, Kelly Couples, whichever one. And, uh, you know, I'll usually stack up 20 or 30 layers. Right. And I'll take that whole thing. And I'll squish it in my in my vise, and I'll run a, a bead on it with my welder just to kind of hold it all together. You can wire wrap it, but then you got to kind of deal with the wires and stuff. I'm lazy. I don't want to do that. So I've, efficient. I'm efficient. Yes, I have very I have very expensive welders, and I use them. Do you use MIG or TIG for that? I prefer to use TIG because that means I don't have any foreign steels introduced in there. I'm not I'm not using a filler rod with my TIG. So I, cool. I, I take my TIG. I've got a nice Miller 250. And, uh, you know, I, I TIG weld up a couple of beads here and there just to kind of hold it together. You're just trying to hold it long enough that you can get it in the forge, get it hot, and squish it in the press. So, you know, I'll, I'll stack up, uh, you know, 30-something layers. And the reason for that is that's how big the door of my forge is. I stack okay. up just – and. I have made the mistake before, and I will caution everyone who is listening, do not stack a stack of Damascus that just barely fits through the door of your forge when it's cold. (laughs) Because remember we said when it gets hot, it gets bigger. (laughs) I I have done that. Uh, 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 Unfortunately, I have done that more than once. Um, where I, I was like, ah, this barely fits through the door. And I wasn't thinking, this is going to get bigger when I get it hot. Um, so leave yourself a, a, a good quarter of an inch, a half inch is better. All right. So I've got like a three inch door on my forge. So I'll stack up about two and a half inches of steel and I'll TIG weld it together just to kind of hold it together. And I'll put a handle on it and I'll stick it in the forge. Um, I do dry weld. Uh, we, I don't know that we have actually got into that earlier. Um, I, I do not do my initial weld with flux. Um, I do it, um, dry or I'll stick it in kerosene beforehand. And what the kerosene does is as it burns off, it leaves a deposit of carbon on the surface of the steel, which does the same thing as the flux. It inhibits oxygen from contacting it. But if carbon gets trapped in your steel well darn there's carbon it can just join the rest of the carbon and have fun i don't care (laughs) you know whereas if flux gets trapped Mm -hmm. in between all of those you know 30 layers of steel 
which happens unfortunately very often in my initial flux well in my initial welds um, you've got a problem so I'll stack up my 30 layers or so I'll dunk it in kerosene and put it straight in the forge and fire gets big I'm sorry, okay. you, you dunk it in a highly combustible fluid and then you yes. stick it into a fire. Yes. That's awesome. Still dripping. Still dripping is actually kind of key to the process because you want the kerosene to burn off on the, in, in the forge and leave that carbon deposit on the surface of the steel. That's what's inhibiting your oxygen. So you, okay. you take it dripping out of the bucket of kerosene and stick it in the forge and don't don't do it inside the garage. I'm, I'm sorry, forge you outside a, the garage. You have a bucket of kerosene within mm -hmm. reach of your forge. Yes. I I don't see what could go wrong with that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now you're thinking like a blacksmith. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So, uh, so the the feather W pattern yeah. is your favorite pattern. What's your is that your favorite pattern to make yes. also? Yep. Um, okay. So feather feather pattern is is kind of one of my favorites because it's it's one of the most indicative of the skill of the smith. Like it, it's it's fairly if you know what you're looking for, it's very easy to look at a feather W pattern and tell if the smith really has. A, a good control of his skill and his tools and and what he's trying to do because it's so easy for that pattern to get off center or to get kind of lopsided or you know a, a really good feather pattern is kind of hard to do um i i don't know if you follow kyle yes, royer uh, on love, instagram but he's royer. been he's a bastard He's been he, he's been I, I doing have, uh, a bunch of really awesome yes. Instagram videos I, and, I, and stuff, and, and I and I say that with a great smile on my face. Um, I do genuinely like Kyle Royer. I'm, I'm close to him in, at the Blade Show, and I see him every year. I genuinely do like him, but he's just one of those that manages to pull things off that you look at and go, "I have tried that." A half a dozen times and it messes up every time and you just did it and now i don't like you and i'm gonna take my toys and go home <laughs> he's just that kind of guy and I, I love him and he's and he's super sweet and he's like very unassuming he's a very and he's a very very nice guy if you ever get a chance to go up and say hi to him he's a really nice guy um but just it just dang it man <laughs> That kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. He's the nicest guy you've ever hated. Yes. Yes. Um, so I was, I was about to say one of the, um, the guy that I look at as probably the best feathered W pattern makers is Kevin Casey. Um, and he's on Instagram. Um, Kevin Casey. Kev I think it's K Casey knives, C A S E Y knives. Um, but uh, you know, just, Beautiful, beautiful Damascus. Full disclosure, I love you, Kevin. I really do. Um, I don't care for his knife shapes. It's right. just, hey, you know. Don't worry about it, Stephen. Nobody but our wives listens to this. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, it's just, it's just, it's just not my style. There's some things that you know, artistically, I look at as as kind of uh, uh, holy grails 
of knife design and he breaks those rules and I look at it and go, your Damascus is pretty. Don't look at that over there. Your Damascus is pretty, right? But, you know, hands down, uh, absolute props. He does amazing feathered W Damascus. Just really clean work. Um, and all and all props to, to Kyle Royer too. His stuff is, you know, his, his feathered W's is absolutely nothing to, to shirk at. Uh, but, you know, just my my preference, like every time I see a Kevin Casey knife on Instagram, I go, ooh, look at that Damascus. That's pretty, you know. Now, as far as mosaic Damascuses, uh, like Salem Straub is, does just some of the coolest kaleidoscope patterns. I love, I love looking at kaleidoscope patterns. I don't do them myself very often because I just don't care. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, that's really pretty. I don't care. <laughs> wow, that looks that looks like a lot of work, <laughs> right? Yeah, I got to I got to meet Salem at the there was a Dama Steel Chef's Knife Invitational uh, mm-hmm. earlier in the year, and I actually got to meet Salem there. That was the first time I'd ever gotten to see him mm-hmm. in person and uh, talked to him for a long time. He's sure. an awesome guy, oh, absolutely. You know, and great knives, beautiful knives, does beautiful kaleidoscope uh, mosaics. I just that's just not something that I look at and go. Oh, I want to make that, you know. Uh, and, I'd like, but I'd like to have it. I don't want to go through all the work to make it. <laughs> sure, sure. He made a he made a super cool one that he won best mm-hmm. integral with. He did the it was a keyhole mm-hmm. integral uh, yeah. chef's knife. It yeah, was he awesome. Does, he does amazing work. I I love looking at Salem's work. Um, but you know, like I said, just that's I, I have nothing against. That Damascus pattern is just not something that I artistically aspire to. You know, I, I, Dave Lish does the Damascus patterns that I aspire to. Like, you know, I look at most of Dave Lish's work and go, I want to learn how to do that. How did you do that right there? And it's usually some small facet of his overall work. Uh, and I love getting into conversations with him at like the, the Blade Show or, or over the internet. Like, I did what, what'd you do right there? How did, that piece of the pattern develop uh, and we get you go you know we get a little esoteric and in, in the craziness of because he's he's one of those uh those more uh classical artist styles where he just you know he goes in the shop with this vision of what he's trying to do and he just does it you know and he just you know kicks it around until it works where I go in with a much more machinist mind point, like, all right, so if I do this, this, and this, I should get that. I didn't get that. All right, right. So let's go back. Four on the horizontal, two right. on the vertical. <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, so, and I, I need to get a little more, um, you know, a little more loosey-goosey with my, uh, with my, with my Damascus art. But, you know, it's, everybody has their own style. And it's kind of one of the nice things when you look at enough Damascus and you look at enough of of how it's made you can really see who made the damascus just looking at the damascus very similar to how we were talking about the japanese stuff like it's really easy uh for me at this point to look at certain damascus patterns and go i know i know who made that yeah i bet yep yeah he made that i see his touch mark now you know or or certain you know knife profiles are are really good ones that way good friend of mine up in uh, up in north carolina uh curtis holland I remember years ago, it was probably four years ago, 
was the first time I stumble across one of his posts on Instagram. And I'm just kind of posting, you know, poking along and I see this picture and, and, and I've never heard of this guy before. And I, I messaged him. I was like, Hey man, really nice work has a really nice Burt Foster look to it. Right. And he, he texted me or he messaged me back. He's like, thanks. Burt Foster is my teacher. I was like, ha Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but uh, you know, if you get the ch- if you get the chance to talk to Curtis Holland, he's a fantastic knife maker. Just it, you know, full disclosure, I think he is one of the the up and coming rising stars in the in the knife world. He's doing beautiful, amazing work. Uh, anyways, moving on. <laughs> right, and if he wasn't before, he is now. <laughs> What's uh? What do you feel like one of the best patterns is for a new maker that has some of the limited tools that might only have a hundred pound anvil and a two pound sledgehammer. There is, there is absolutely nothing wrong with a good random pattern Damascus. Um, you know, a, a random pattern Damascus is, is a really fun one to make because it really shows how the Smith made the Damascus and can be absolutely beautiful Damascus. That being said, I don't count random pattern Damascus as a pattern, right? It's, you know, you, you just, you just kind of made Damascus and whatever it was is what you end up with. And that's kind of cheating as far as having a pattern. Ladder pattern is probably one of the best to, uh, to, to get somebody to, to work on because, you know, once, once you get past the mechanical difficulty of actually getting steel to weld together and end up into a bar shape, you still have to do something mechanically to it that requires precision layout and precision in terms of, you know, you don't want to be a half inch off. You know, you take a ruler and a piece of chalk and you can be precise enough for doing ladder. An angle grinder with a grinding wheel and grind grind some lines in there. Uh, but it still requires you to actually lay out and understand what the layers are going to do when you manipulate them under power. Um, so ladder pattern is one of my my favorites to try and get new knife makers to do. I don't know what it is about raindrop that just irks me. I do not like raindrop raindrop pattern Damascus. I don't. That's usually done in a cylinder, isn't it? No, no, no. You take you take random pattern Damascus. And then you take a drill bit and you just peck the Damascus and you just kind oh. of, you just drill in, you know, a quarter of an inch or so all over the bar. And then you flip it over and do the other side. And then when you smush that back down flat, you've exposed those layers and it kind of looks like raindrop puddles in, in the layers. For some reason, I thought that was done with ball bearings and, and iron filings in a cylinder. Um, no, that's a different, that's like a dragon skin Damascus. Well, dragon skin Damascus is actually iron rods in a canister and then you work it on a bias, but don't tell Mm -hmm. anyone I told you that. Um, your secret is safe with us, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah. And whoever decides to listen to this. Now, you, you can, you can get all kinds of crazy when we start talking about canister Damascus because like, uh, you can actually like make portraiture in a canister i did i did for the remember the wedding i was telling you earlier about the mm-hmm. tetons um i made the bride mm-hmm. and groom uh wedding rings of a mountain range with a canister damascus wow. right so i took i took my uh, a, a square 
piece of steel tube, and then I took some 15 and 20 um, bar, and I formed this uh, mountain range out of it, and then I filled all the negative space with 1084 powder, uh, and then forged that together, right? And, you know, when I was done, you, you there's a mountain there. There's, there's pictures of it on my Instagram way back. It's uh, two years ago now. Um, but they, they came out beautifully, really beautiful. But you can do mountain ranges. You can do uh, – um, uh, Steve Schwartzer just did a, a dinosaur with um, – what's his name? He works with Alex Steele. Will Stetler, I think. Um, you know, he just did, like, dinosaurs in the steel. And you can do all kinds of, like, crazy portraiture and stuff. Um, a good friend of mine, Ron Claiborne up in Tennessee, had figured out – he sat down. And, and it probably took him a year or two figuring it out, but he figured out all the different alloys and actually figured out how to do like portraiture painting in a canister where you could get shading and, and you know, different accents and stuff by using different powders in different zones. You can do just insanely artistic stuff once you start getting into canister Damascus. Um, the, the sky is yeah. literally the limit of the designs you can do. Uh, I saw somebody just a, a week yeah. or two ago. I can't remember who it was exactly, but he, he took triangle files and welded them to a plate in a, mm -hmm. in a Fibonacci curl and then filled the rest of it with the, with the, uh, the powder. And so he's got this, you know, Damascus of a Fibonacci curl and, it's, you know, stuff like that is you, it would be almost impossible to do that in bar stock, you know, layering up Damascus in a, in a traditional manner. But once you start getting into canister patterns, I mean, there's no limit to the designs you can make if you're imaginative enough in how to do it. At the Badger Knife Show that I go to at the mm -hmm. end of March, there's a guy that does a bunch of the mosaic Damascus. And uh, I forget what his name is at the, mostly, the moment. Mostly folding somebody. Uh, he just sells uh, the Damascus. He didn't have any knives on his table. Oh, okay. I remember. Yeah, that's not that's not Peter Martin. I've never known him to sell his Damascus. Um, but yeah, the, so there was one pattern that he called the Fu Damascus, <laughs> and he would always uh, he'd always show it to people after mm -hmm. they had bought it. And there's a a big middle finger <laughs> like in one of the in one of the yeah, little spots. There you go. So yeah, yep. it's pretty funny. I was going to ask, when people start doing pattern welding, what are some of the, the common mistakes? The, so the common mistakes, the most common mistake is working your steel too cold. I cannot stress enough how much it bothers me to watch somebody work steel that's like, you know, red hot as, as they're, you know, working their Damascus. Um, you are just begging your steel to rip apart and come apart and, and try again. You know, it needs to be just smoking yellow hot, white hot, if your forge can pull it off until the very end of your forging process. Um, uh, I don't care how hot you think it is. It needs to be hotter. When you get to where you've done this for a couple of years and you've got, you know, a couple hundred pounds of Damascus on your bow, then you can tell me it's hot enough. Until then, it's not hot enough. Get it hotter. <laughs> you know what I mean? The layers. Cooling at different at different rates mm -hmm. put the stress into mm -hmm. it. Yep. Yeah. It's you know, and it, it it so many problems come from just 
man, it's not hot enough. What are you doing? You're just you're just shearing weld layers. You're just you know working hot steel against cold steel, and that's never going to work out well for you. Your pattern is going to deform all kinds of funky. Like it just just don't do it. It's a bad idea. Stop it. Bad newbie back in the corner. <laughs> right. Um, not not too often, but it does come up every now and then. You know, people trying to start out who've never really done Damascus, and they're doing like weird crazy damascus mixes like dude just get 1084 and 15 and 20 you don't have to get fancy with it it works every time if it doesn't work it's because you did something wrong not because the steels are funky you know as as a beginner you don't want to be trying weird boutique composites of steel because it may just be that you've got to have some weird technique or some weird heating process to make it work and you don't know it because you don't know the first thing about welding steel, you know? Don't reinvent the wheel. So, exactly. You know, take take this thing. I, kn I know it's boring. I'm sorry that every other knife maker out there is using 1084 and 15N20. But you know why every other <laughs> knife maker out there is using 1084 and 15 and 20 Because it works. So, you know, use what works for a while until you actually have an understanding of why it works and how it works and what the the advantages and disadvantages are and then if it's not doing what you want it to do well all right now you've got some experience on you go out and try something a little different don't don't reinvent the wheel just to be the guy that reinvented the wheel like okay but uh you know it doesn't roll when you do that right so it's not really a wheel for once in your life don't be that guy <laughs> for once yep exactly all right, Hamon. 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 Yes. I don't know why that's in there because it has nothing to do with Damascus. Um, you know that, right? <laughs> Dan. Dan, Dan put, it, put it in there. He's just trying to slip one. In. He's just trying to catch me off guard. No, no. Hamon is so Hamon is a is a terrible word to use in a Western reference. So ha is the edge of a sword, right? Yeah. Mon is signature, if you will, right? So ha-mon is the signature edge of the sword. And what that means is, remember we were saying earlier, the hada or the grain of the Damascus layering of the sword would give you a really good insight into which smith and which village made this sword, right? The ha-mon or the edge signature of the sword would do very similar. Each school had their own way of claying up the blade, and that would leave certain portions of the blade as martensite and certain portions of the blade as perlite. Um, common misconception, we're going off on a side tangent, but you started it, so it's not my fault. Uh, common misconception uh, of the the clay in the heat treating process of creating hamon is that it the clay keeps the backside from getting hot enough to harden. That's not it. What it does is you put the clay on the backside of the sword and it acts as a resist in the heat, in the quenching phase of the heat treat. So you get the whole sword, back, front, clay, all of it is up to 1480, 1500 degrees. But when you put it into the water, and water is key in this, when you put it into the water, only the part that isn't covered with clay gets cold fast enough to begin that martensite transformation. I know we've all talked about TTT diagrams, and we understand what that perlite and martensite nose is. So the only part that 
You got you got that, Dan? Uh, actually, I do, and that is one of the things we're going to come back to with the metallurgist. There we go. So the only <laughs> portion of the steel that actually breaks that martensite nose and starts into the martensite reaction is the part that's not covered with clay, um, right? So hamon mm -hmm. is done with clay, and the clay acts as a resist in the heat treat process, preventing the spine or the backside or whatever portion of the blade you have covered with clay, preventing that from cooling fast enough to harden. Now, each different school, each different village would have their own, you know, clay mixture. The, the different compounds used as the clay mattered. Uh, they would have their own patterns that they would use to put on the clay. Um, and so, you could you could look at the different patterns of the hardening process and you could somewhat identify which smith which time period which village so forth had made this blade it was another fingerprint on the sword to help you identify who had made the sword now my issue if you will with using the term hamon on modern western blades um with very few exceptions there's very few Western knife makers that can do the same pattern over and over and over. And I'm sorry, but if you can't do it repeatedly, it's not your signature. Mm -hmm. It's random. Now, it's very pretty. It's very nice. I do it a lot. It is artistically a pretty thing. Um, but it, sh it, it should not be called Hamon. That being said, I am Quixote tilting at windmills because everybody else out there calls it Hamon, so it's Hamon, whatever. Um, but it's it's a terrible term to use with the level of skill that we are using to apply this effect to our blades. Should we be calling that like a differentially yeah, hardened? Yeah, differentially hardened or, a, or you know, a, a hardening hardening line. Some people call it a tempering line, which almost irks me just as much. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know. It's different for heat. With, with enough scotch, I can get over all of this. You really just pumped up everything in the world. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I had a uh, one of the other engineers that came up to me, and he, he said, uh, I want one of the, the high-carbon steel. I don't want any of that junk stainless steel. It just doesn't have enough uh. carbon in it. And I said, you do know that it has yeah. more carbon than your, your high-carbon steel. So he Quite was like, what? Yeah. Yes, it does. But it needs that because it's going to create all the carbides with the chromium or the, uh, you know, the vanadium or the nickel that is going to rob the carbon from the iron matrix and yada, yada, yada. And you watch his mm -hmm. eyes glaze over and roll back in his head and he falls over backwards and you go, ha, 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 ha. He kind of got he kind of got the uh, when I was talking to him about it, he's like okay uh, apparently you really know what you're actually talking about <laughs> yep absolutely but uh, so do you have any more more questions about I don't Hamon Dan um, um, now I, I so I, I'm looking at your notes of what you're asking questions on and you ask about other advantages than looking pretty yeah. Well, it's, it's a different. It's do, a different. Do we really have time to open that Pandora's box, or should I just give you the five minute? Rant? Well, I would say go back to episode ten and see us talking about differential heat uh, heat treat. That's really what it is, like an edge quench. 
Well, yeah, kind of. Um, so I, I had this out with uh, a buddy of mine who's kind of setting himself up for the Journeyman Smith test, the performance test. And he was telling me that he now he's using 5160. And he said he was going to do an edge quench where he was going to just heat up the edge and harden the edge and leave the backside as perlite. That is a terrible mm-hmm. idea. Now, hear me. I love Hamon. Artistically, it's a beautiful thing. If you have an ounce of honesty and, and knowledge about metallurgy, you have to admit that Hamon is structurally weaker than a fully hardened blade, even if you uh, over-temper the spine of the blade. It's just science. No matter how you want to cut it, tempered martensite is stronger than perlite in any test you want to pull off. No matter. Don't you also get a slip plane where the two grain structures? Mm-hmm. Absolutely can. So, you know, I love Hamon. I'm not saying don't do Hamon on your knives. Hamon is beautiful. It's fun. I do it. It's great. I like it. It's pretty. It is structurally weaker than a fully martensitic blade. No matter how you want to mechanically test it, it is. Period. So there there are no advantages structurally to doing a differential edge hardening it is pretty and there is you know there's a lot to be said for pretty especially in this conversation because everything we've talked about is really just an aesthetic conversation there's no mechanical reason to do damascus there's no mechanical reason to do sanmai there's no mechanical reason to do hamon it, it's not an advantage in any scientific sense of the word but it's pretty and as long as you it's pretty as long as you're being honest about that that's legitimate absolutely you know i i don't want to go get groceries in a ferrari but i kind of want to go get groceries in a ferrari yeah it may take me six trips but i'll smile all six and i'll look good doing it (laughs) right like it may not be the best way to do it but i'm gonna look good in the way Right, Perform- you know, so performance. Arguably, yep. you should do a homogeneous quench, and then if you want differential temper, you can use the torch mm-hmm. to soften the spine. Scientifically accurate, yes. But it doesn't give you the visual striking effect that happen that mm-hmm. Hamon line will. Right, and and that's for every knife maker to evaluate on their own on the basis of their own work. Is the aesthetic worth the trade off? of the mechanical well maybe um are you going to make the blade a little bit thicker for the trade-off because you know i I need i need this much structural ability to put up with abuse and i could make a three sixteenths blade that'll put up with that abuse but it won't be as pretty or i could make a quarter inch spine blade that's prettier but it weighs a little bit more and it may not quite cut as well, but it'll cut really damn well. But it's pretty, <laughs> you know. What what trade offs are you looking for? If you're going in for the, the you know the the ICC cutting competitions, man, beauty be damned, that thing better cut like a mother. But you know, if you're going to put 
a presentation piece of you know mammoth ivory on this Damascus blade, and uh, yeah, I'll make it a little thicker to because I'm still you know I don't care how pretty the knife is if it's got my name on it it's gonna perform or just that's that's the end of the story if it doesn't perform I made a mistake period um yeah. you know but if I'm gonna make a, a pretty knife and I'm not uh, you know I'm not going for the ultimate in performance I'll make that trade-off in you know I'll make it a little bit thicker or I'll leave the tip a little bit wider or I'll, you know I'll change my profile grind just a little bit to to make up for the fact that you know I'm using you know this this steel makeup or that so forth to to end up with a knife that still has the performance that I want it may weigh an extra ounce. Okay. It's damn pretty, you know? Cool. So speaking of making that hemone pretty, uh, we got move on to etching. So for a lot of your, your high carbon stuff, uh, we talked about ferrochloride mm -hmm. before. What kind of, do you have a mix ratio that you use or? Um, so I have, I have a couple of different mix ratios that I use. So I pretty much use ferrochloride for all of my etching. There's, and that's just because that's what I landed on. Uh, I'm not advocating that as the end-all be-all. Um, ferret chloride works. Straight white vinegar works. Uh, hydrochloric acid does not do very well for etching Damascus, but it does really well at peeling scale off of uh, a freshly forged stuff. If you start getting into like stainless Damascus, then you, you need to start looking at like phosphoric acid and nitric <laughs> acid, which um, you just, be very, very careful with those. They are not kidding. Um, you know. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard for the the damascus steel stuff. They were saying a lot of them use hydrochloric acid, mm -hmm. and uh, it needed to be mm -hmm. warm. Um, and one of the guys said that he had like a Pyrex with dish on a steel? hot plate. Yeah, to etch the the stainless Damascus. I am. I have not heard that. I would be surprised if hydrochloric would be a strong enough acid to pull that off, but maybe they're going for longer etchants uh, to avoid using a more caustic acid, which I can certainly understand and would uh, would be in favor of. Um, you know, well, and heat is the catalyst for that, isn't it? Yes, heat heat is going to make any etchant work more aggressively. Absolutely. Um, you know, just don't make it you know, crazy hot to where you're, you're boiling and, and causing foaming issues. And then you've got to clean up the floor and then your wife is going to kick. Mm. Which you won't notice because your face is melting off. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, also yeah. make sure you're doing this in a well ventilated well area. Ventilated. Also keep in mind that, you know, once you get up above like 150 degrees, um, you're making a good bit of that acidic mixture vaporize into the air in your shop that may or may not have a bunch of machine tools so think think about that you'll come out the next yeah you'll come out the next day and all of your stuff is really rusty and you'll go what happened well you were you were boiling stuff in hydrochloric acid three feet away from there the other day so that yeah. <laughs> if, if um, yeah. So I I get a lot of my Damascus billet stuff from Alabama mm -hmm. Damascus, and it said to do a fifty fifty mix of ferric chloride and uh, white vinegar. Uh -huh. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's worked pretty well for me. And then I also do now, the did, uh, did, coffee etch okay. afterwards. Very good. Yeah, the coffee etch is a really nice because it tends to parkerize the the uh, the darker. It tends to uh, it tends to chemically change the form of the oxides on the uh, the manganese steel um, and stabilize it, which can give you a really black versus shiny layer. It's a very mm-hmm. it's a very nice contrast. Me and I we've been using one on in our kitchen for eight mm-hmm. months or so, and it's stayed. Yep, pretty good. You haven't cut any steak with it, have you? Uh, we've cut everything yeah. with it. Very nice, <laughs> awesome. Steak tends to turn things purple and it's just really cool, iridescent, like purple and blue colors. I love yeah. it, but you know, yeah, it kind of it's kind of getting a little bit of the the high carbon mm-hmm. steel patina y looking, but it's not. I mean, it doesn't look as good as the the first day we sure. had it, sure. but it's uh, still staying pretty mm-hmm. dark. Now, I don't care for that strong of a ferric. Um, I have found for my own use, I much prefer a 10 to 1 ratio of ferric. Now, part of, I was, I was going to ask, part of this depends upon the purity of the ferric that you're buying. Um, I'm buying um, like 90% ferric, where it's, you know, basically pure ferric chloride. Um, yeah, it's like 13 molar or something like that. I don't know that I'm familiar with that scale. It's, I, I've heard it. Um, but if you're buying like the ferric chloride PCB etchant from like Radio Shack, that's already cut 50-50, right? Mm. So I'm getting okay. like chemistry set type ferric chloride, and I'm mixing it 10 to 1 with um, uh, um, not not purified water. What's the distilled water? Distilled, distilled water, distilled. right? Um, and I have found that to be aggressive enough that it does what I want it to do, but no more aggressive. One of the things you want to, especially if you're starting out in this, is go to the lower end of uh, aggressiveness with your etch, uh, because you can always leave it in the etch for an extra hour or two or so forth. Um, It's really annoying when you, you know, you read that forum post online that says, oh, you put it in there for, you know, an hour, and when you come back, it looks great. And then you realize that your acid is substantially stronger than you thought, and you leave it in there for an acid for an hour, and it's destroyed. (laughs) So, you know. As a side note on the the safety Mm -hmm. issue. Yes. When you're mixing acid and water, it's uh, acid into water, right? Yes. You always put the, the – you always fill the container with the proper amount of water and add the acid to it so that when you start putting the acid into the water – and we shouldn't be actually saying acid because ferric chloride is a base, but the uh, etchant into the water. The reagent. Yes. When you, when you start putting the, the, the reagent into the water, it is super diluted until it comes up to its proper concentration. If you do it the other way around, you put all the reactant in the, in the or reagent into the container and you start adding water, uh, for a while there, it's super, super caustic. Um, and, and that's bad. That, that tends to make things go poof uh, in your face, and that's bad. Chemistry teachers laugh at the people with no eyebrows and go, I told you, don't do it that way. Back to your face melting off. Yes, yes. 
So yes, always, always add chemicals to water and not the other way around. Um, but you know, like I said, I I prefer a a uh, more dilute concentration of ferric, and that you know, I, I'm not necessarily comparing my concentration to yours because I don't know what you started with in terms of ferric concentration. Yeah, I, I had a pretty. I bought like a industrial chemical one. I didn't buy the Radio Shack okay. stuff, so I, I'm, it was probably fairly okay. pure. So, and then and again, there's there's nothing yeah, wrong the, with, with the using. Vinegar. So I I have two tanks. The one that I use the most is a ten to one distilled and ferric, right? The other one is a one to one distilled water and ferric chloride, um, and I don't use that one very often, but every now and then. Um, there's there's nothing wrong with having a, a you know significantly stronger etchant as long as you know what you're doing and you're keeping an eye on it. You know you, you're not gonna you're not gonna put it in there and come back five minutes later and go oh, I don't have a blade. You know, but what do you make your tanks out of? What material? Oh, I just got PVC tube and and glued on a uh, PVC end on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I put a, a permanent end cap on one end of a four foot tube of, I think it's three inch PVC. And on the other one, I put a, a clean out, uh, which in, you know, as PVC terms is it glues on one side and the other side is threaded. And I put a threaded cap on it so that I can close it because I, I leave it closed unless I'm actually etching something, uh, because it will vaporize and it will destroy all of the very nice expensive machine tools in my garage and that's that's yeah. bad nick wheeler just yes, had a post on that. instagram that a bunch of his favorite files mm-hmm. are all super uh, rusty yep. now and uh <laughs> it's it's you, you'll probably uh, agree and commiserate with me um when you get a couple of like really really good files and they become the files that you go to when you want to do this thing or that thing. It really mm. hurts when you destroy those files. You know, it's not like it's a $10 file from Home Depot. Like I've got a pair of, or I've got a set of needle files that it's like a $150 set of needle files for these six files, but they're so nice when you want to do actual fiddly little details, like really high quality files are worth every penny, but man, it sucks when you break them. It's kind of, mm-hmm. well, and I, or I they wear out. Do a lot of my yep. shaping on the handles with files, and mm-hmm. the time it takes to finally find the right brand with the right aggressiveness cut, so you get just what you mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then you do a little Macarta and G10, and the next thing you know, it's dull. Yeah. Yep. That's life. <laughs> Nichols Nicholson used to be my favorite, but I I have not liked Nicholson for the fi- last five or six years. They used to have two two manufacturers, one in Mexico and one in the U.S. And the U.S. manufacturer made a significantly higher quality file than the Mexican. Um, but I haven't found any Nicholsons that I liked in the last couple of years. I I have been buying some new old stock off of eBay, which I really like. Um, Simmons Black use- Diamonds is a pretty good file. I like those. You can get them at like Fast and All. I used Nicholson Black Diamond for a while, but to your point, something changed, mm-hmm. and I'm just not getting the life out of them that nope. I used to. Yep. And I'm, you know, I don't, I don't baby my tools at all, 
but I'm not abusive. And, you know, yeah, five, five years ago or so or uh, on the Nicholson files, they just stopped working the same. You know, I used to get five, six months out of a file. And lately I've been buying Nicholson's that like, well, not lately because I stopped buying them because they <laughs> suck. But, you know, you, I'll get half a dozen handles out of it and it's just, it just doesn't cut anymore. And it's not a cleanliness thing. Like I'll, I'll brush them and I'll, I'll hit them with soapstone or whatnot to try and keep them from loading up. And it just, just doesn't work. They just dull. Yeah, I I do a ton of file work, and the seven inch extra slim taper file works the best mm-hmm. for me. And I I haven't found any other company other than Nicholson that kind of makes mm-hmm. it in that size and length. And uh, I buy them by the pack of twelve. Yeah. And I used to get like ten, fifteen uh, at least uh, spines mm-hmm. out of a file, and now I'm lucky to get yeah. five. Yep. So. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Just kind of think. Just kind of thinking of it as a consumable, like the ceramic belts yeah. now. Which you know, it's always been a consumable, but you know, it when you when you kind of structure yourself around the idea of you're gonna get ten knives out of one fifteen dollar file, and suddenly you're getting five knives out of a fifteen dollar file. Well, you know, your price there has doubled. Someone's got to pay for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So, uh, do you got anything else, Dan? Um, I think that is it. Um, I think we might have come to the end of today's uh, podcast. I mean, we yeah. we have been going be a for, nice nice long one to... for three hours. I don't know how much more you want. We haven't even really gotten into any of how to make different patterns. It was just how to actually make Damascus. Well, I, I was afraid yeah. that fold it to the left, fold it to the right. To the left twice, to the right once. Fold it down. <laughs> Forty-five minutes of that was going to get a little repetitive. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So you can uh, find Stephen at uh, Fowler Blades and on Instagram at Fowler Blades, yes, and then he has a production line, uh, Feral Knives, and they are uh, FeralKnives dot com and Feral Knives on Instagram. Absolutely. Any other places that people can find you? No, that's that's pretty much it. Um, I, you know, it, it's it's a bad problem, but a good problem to have to say I don't have anything for sale. If you wanted anything right now, <laughs> um, everything I have is is sold before I finish it. But you know, I I, I try, I try. So yeah, congratulations. <laughs> if you put enough zeros behind in front of that decimal point, Stephen will get a knife to you. <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> yeah don't don't put no. them behind the decimal no, 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 point no. <laughs> i was homeschooled but i wasn't that homeschooled <laughs> <laughs> all right and you can uh stay in touch with the podcast knifeperspective.com has all the show notes and um some information about us you can also connect with us on facebook and instagram we're trying to been doing a bunch of shout outs with people in the stories the the last couple weeks uh people that are doing some cool stuff so make sure you check that out and you can find the podcast on itunes spotify google podcast stitcher and tuned in radio um if there's a podcast uh player of your choice that is not 
one of those, um, give me a, shoot me a message at Kyle at knifeperspective.com and we will try to fix that. You can uh, get in touch with me at cagedailyknives.com. It's where you can find a bunch of my work and there's some, uh, some of my knives that are available and I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, cage daily knives. And, uh, like I said before, Kyle at knifeperspective.com and also Kyle at cage daily knives.com for email addresses. And Dan, you can get in touch with him at dogwood custom knives.com. And he's on Facebook and Instagram, but, uh, pretty much the best way to get in touch with Dan is to email him, uh, Dan at dogwood custom knives.com. All those links are in the show notes. So, uh, anybody else have anything before we uh, end this other show? I'd like to thank Stephen for uh, some some great knowledge about all things Damascus and prepping. And no, you are absolutely welcome. All the tools absolutely. and stuff. Yes, fun time. Do you have anything, Dan? You still there? Um, yeah. Uh, good night, Dan. <laughs> good night, Dan. <laughs> good night, Dan. <laughs> well, let's take it to the edge, because that's what's expected. In this discussion, this is the night prospective. Let's get to the point. We're going to talk about